Books, booze, and B-movies with your favorite tipsy cuties. What's up, pod people? I'm Sam. And I'm Katie. And this is Real Lit. We cover classic literature and under-discussed movies. I am an English professor in community colleges up and down the West Coast. No, just part of the West Coast. I mean, a large part, to be fair. California is pretty large. Yeah, our valley alone is like the size of 15 states on the East Coast. So <laughs> for real, fight me, East Coast. And I am your resident cinephile. You know me from all the other shows here on Allentown Presents. I watch a lot of movies and I talk a lot of shit about them. Yes. That's uh, what I do. Yeah. <laughs> the best. Okay. Today. Um, I'm not going to say I'm excited because I don't like to lie to people and I'm not that excited. I'm excited to that. Actually, I can I can change that. I am excited. Not because I enjoy this book in any way, shape or form, because I don't. Um, but I'm excited to talk shit about this book <laughs> with Katie and with everyone else listening, because today we are covering Madame Bovary. So uh, I definitely warned Katie beforehand when we were talking about what we were going to do for the next episode. I was like, yeah, we're going to be talking about a lot of sex. And man, are we going to talk about a lot of sex today? <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, that's good. My movie has no sex at all. So, so. <laughs> so we'll just get all over with in the first half. And then yes. that way you've been sated. Great. Okay. This is Madame Bovary. It was originally published as Madame Bovary with the subtitle Provincial Manners, right? Or in French, because this is a uh, spoiler alert, a French story. Madame that Bovary. French already. Yeah. Madame Bovary, Madame de Provence would have been the, the French version of that. This is the debut novel of French writer Gustave Flaubert, and it was published in 1856. And this is the story of the uh, tragedy of Madame Bovary. So we begin, we meet Charles Bovary, who um, we learn who he is. He is the son of a middle class, too big for their britches couple of bougies, essentially. He is pretty smart when he works he works hard when he wants to work hard. He's very smart when he works hard and when he wants to be. And so he goes into medicine and there's this uh, period where he like stopped doing his studies for a while, even because like, that's what college is like, like welcome to college, Charles Bovary, <laughs> even in the 1800s, all college people go through that initial freshman slump and Charles Bovary is no different, but he works through that. And he sets himself up in a town where the older doctor of that town just previously died basically and his mom finds him a wife yes his mom finds him a wife who is an old widow and this old widow is now charles's wife and she is very controlling and domineering and a jealous hag honestly just like not great but I need to note here, first and foremost, I'm going to be doing a lot of condensing and synthesizing about these things, because while this is, in fact, what is happening, the stuff that I've just said right now, it's not necessarily how Flaubert says it, that we understand that that's how it's happening. And this is why he is touted as a very good writer, understandably. 
I will give that caveat right now because for the remainder of this episode, I'm going to be talking a lot of shit about this dumb story. (laughs) Um, So he is a great writer. He doesn't say these things outright, but he shows us by describing practical things that the characters are doing. So he's not saying, you know, in the narrative, Charles is is a privileged mama's boy who is mediocre, but he has his mother do everything for him and he studies all the time. He gets respectable passing grades. Um, It's described in that way rather than just coming right out and saying it. So, you know, his wife isn't described as what I said, but she, for instance, tells him how to dress and what to do with his patients and how to act and what days he has to do what activities. And she listens behind closed doors when his patients are women. And every night she berates him for like probably having a mistress. So Flaubert doesn't say this lady is a domineering jealous hag, but the descriptions of the actions that he gives make that obvious. And so that yeah. is Flaubert's writing style. And pretentious, in- got you. Right. And in instances, it is very good and very well written. And then there are instances that we will get to where there's just no need for it, but he's just in it to win it. And yeah, it is a lot. This book is not quite long, like even for its time, like it's, it's kind of middle of the road in terms of length. It feels like it's a million pages long. It's so so hard to read. And I'm someone who loves reading and I will love books, even books from this time period that are longer than this. And I will hang on every word on every page. And it feels like it flies by for me. This book is not that long, pretty middle of the road in terms of length for this time period. And holy shit, did it feel like I was just pounding my head with a hammer. Every single word felt like it was a thousand words. (laughs) It was so long. Okay. Uh, that's how I felt while reading Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> oh, God. Like every page might as well have been 100 pages because mm-hmm. that shit was just like, kill me now. This is the worst, the worst thing I've ever read in my life. <laughs> when I was finishing it up, I had like 30 pages left in this read of this book when I was making my notes. And I was just sitting there on the couch and Kevin was like, why don't you just skip it? And just like, look at the cliff notes. And I was like, there's only 30 pages left. <laughs> And he was like, you only have 30 pages. He was like, how long is that book? He's like, it's taken you a week, like to finish this. Usually you like speed through your books. And I was like, I know it's just so awful to work through that. I just can't get it's so dense. I kept sitting there reading and he like he would laugh because I would just be like, how is there still 10 more pages, five more pages? (laughs) How? There's nothing more to say, Flaubert. Please shut up. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. So welcome to our podcast. Um, yeah. <laughs> for those of you who tried to read Madame Bovary for school <laughs> or whatever and just couldn't fucking get through it, enjoy Sam's retelling. That is much less painful. Please do, because to be perfectly honest, I, uh, five out of 10, if you're super interested in this era and this genre of writing, sure, give it a read, I guess, if you want to. Uh, if you're not, it's really not worth it in my personal professional opinion. And no, I will not be taking any questions. <laughs> so anyway, one day Charles Bovary gets a house call to a farmer who's broken his leg. And it's just this farmer and his daughter on their farm. His what daughter- year does this take place? Sorry. This is in the 1800s. This is like um, 
let me scroll to look the like time frame early 1800s late 1800s it is um estimated to be between 1827 and 1846 that the events of this story take place oh so this yeah. dude with a broken leg probably gonna die got it honestly that would have been a very real concern right which is why this is a big house call and yeah. something big for charles so yeah. he goes it's just the farmer who is a Monsieur uh, Ruel and his daughter, Emma Ruel. And Charles takes a liking to them tremendously, clearly because Emma is hot and also is like not a harpy, obviously. Um, so he keeps coming back over and over, even after there's no need. He like saves, I forget the dad's name, but Monsieur Ruel, he saves the dude's life. He gets his leg all in order and it's miraculous and wonderful and there's no need for him to be coming back anymore and he keeps coming back over and over anyway because he is very obviously like smitten with emma and his wife eventually suspects that he's doing this because he's in love with emma and he doesn't realize it but he clearly is he doesn't really want to admit it after he even comes to the realization so then his wife forbids him to go back and then we come to find out that the wealthy widow that he married had actually been lying about her wealth the whole time and was not as well off as she had insinuated when his mom was interviewing marriage candidates for him, I guess. So his parents are now furious at her for this. And he's a pretty weak constitution dude in this regard. So he's not like happy about this, but he also defends her because it's his wife and that's what he feels is his like husbandly duty. Then she like, after going home just suddenly is coughing up blood and then she dies what and it, yeah <laughs> and it's unclear what's happened here other than now she's dead all right is I it mean, a heart attack is it a stroke i don't know man old age and the humiliation of her wealthy reputation is probably it because that's very french i was gonna say how old is she because she couldn't have been that old there's, I have a lot of questions, but I don't need answers. It's fine. <laughs> it's the 1800s in France. And that should honestly answer the question here. Yeah. Tuberculosis, syphilis, na- you name an STD. Could have been any of them. Yeah. So whatever. Now Charles is in mourning. Um, he didn't love her, but she loved him and she was his companion, you know, after all and he was with her for a while. And so overall, the father comes to pay his respects and be like, hey, dude, like, come back to the farm. We'll show you a good time. We'll hopefully take your mind off things. So he goes back and he hits it off once again with Emma. He becomes a regular there yet again. Emma is clearly someone who has her head like partway in the clouds. The The narrative is told in third person technically. So it does bounce around between characters, but so far up until now, it's only been Charles that we've been following, essentially. That will change soon. But as of right now, it's only been really from Charles's point of view. So Charles is determined to marry her, but he can't get the question out. And so Walt guesses this far in advance. (laughs) So when Charles finally does intimate to her father what he wants, Walt gives his blessing and asks Emma for Charles. And Emma says yes. And they have to wait out until the next spring because that's the end of the mourning period, the official mourning period for Charles. And then that they finally do marry. Okay. So after that, the wedding party 
the days after, because I guess this is how weddings are done in France in the 1800s. They're just days long parties, I guess. That sounds fantastic. (laughs) So note that while Emma doesn't seem different, Charles is obviously smitten and is like all up on that ass. But the guests are like, "Mm, Emma doesn't seem like any different than she usually is with him. So they finally leave the Ralt farm their wedding extravaganza and they go back to Charles's which is now Emma's new home and she sets up and she makes her changes in the house and they begin married life and Charles is sublimely happy and he treats her honestly like perfectly like really good he's a very affectionate and doting husband and she on the other hand is not feeling the same passion now that the ceremony is done and being married has begun and this is finally where we start learning about Emma and following Emma. So we learn Emma's backstory. She was educated and lived in a convent for a lot of her life. And she is 100% that bitch. She reads all the gossip magazines and the naughty novels and the adventure novels. And she adores anything luxurious or ornate or dramatic or over the top. And she's like, loves passion and she loves extreme fantasy and she eventually gets bored with the convent that she's growing up in and she leaves after her mother um, has died and she was also getting bored of the country life essentially right about the time Charles showed up and she thought this would be ecstasy and an adventure when she got married and she was wrong right welcome to marriage it's hard work (laughs) so Charles loves her but it's a routine love and she wants you guessed it drama and extraordinary circumstances so she is unhappy and now she wishes that she never got married that is where we are at when the Marquis d'Andervier invites them to his chateau after Charles cured him of an abscess in his mouth so they go and it's this big get together for a ball. And there's was he like of- a dentist too? That's insane. Yeah. So in terms of being a doctor, like you can specialize in certain areas, but a doctor would generally do everything like that. They yeah. Be, you know, they, they wouldn't be like, oh, you have a dentist or you have someone for your eyes. Like it would all just be taken care of by the doctor. Yeah. If it were like larger surgeries, then you could be like a specialized surgeon. I couldn't even imagine. I had a fucking dental abscess once and it was the most painful shit I've ever experienced. Mm. I couldn't imagine going through that in the 1800s. Right. Where there was like, you know, no anesthesia and the cure for everything was like, here's some heroin. Do it. Yeah. Or uh, let me just stab you and bleed you out a little bit. That'll definitely make things better. Yeah. Put put leeches on it. You'll feel better. Yeah. Which happens a lot in this novel. So they go to this ball and there's lots of people and Emma is beside herself with happiness because it's there's finery and there's splendor and there's the history of the estate and there's fancy rich shit and she dances with this dude and it this, it's so spicy that she like has to compose herself afterward and she like bougie. Yeah, she bougie AF. So Charles is happy to be back home after, but she is forever changed by this. She like had a taste of this life that she now knows that she desperately wants and like needs and is back in the old routine that she was already upset with. 
So she gets very depressed and moody for the next year or more. Nothing like this happens again after for her, the the ball or anything. And it's bad. She's just literally all over the place. And I'm going to read a passage to put in perspective. It is on the one hand, wow, this is just a bougie bitch, but it is also insinuating a seriousness here. So she would wear an open necked dressing gown that revealed between its softly draped lapels, a pleated bodice fastened by three gold buttons. Her belt was a cord with big tassels and her tiny garnet red slippers bore rosettes of wide ribbons that cascaded over the instep. She had bought herself a blotter, a writing case, a pen holder, and some envelopes, although she had no one to write to. She would dust her shelves, look at herself in the mirror, pick up a book, and then as daydreams replaced the lines of print, let it fall onto her lap. She longed to travel. She longed to go back to her convent to live. She wanted to die. And she wanted to live in Paris. So there's this way that Flaubert writes, especially in these sort of moments that really does beautifully characterize the the chaotic nature of depression, whether or not they would have been in a position in the 1800s to understand that, oh, this is like a serious thing. Like, it's not just that she's being bougie, although she is. But it's also like what she just described is the same sort of listlessness and aimlessness and feelings that if you've ever experienced even just situational depression, that's that's a very accurate description. You don't know what to do. You don't really take care of yourself. You put on random clothes because you're not taking care of your body and you you buy things that you don't use because you've done it on a whim because you're looking for anything to make yourself feel better. And this is what she goes through here. Like she wants to die. That is a statement. Yeah. Finally, Charles being a doctor is like, we got to do something like this is bad. This is not good. And maybe it's the environment. So we should move. Okay, let's do that. Yes. So they move to a different place. And she's pregnant now, by the way. So this new place has people and we meet some of them. There's an innkeeper woman. There's a pharmacist named Homei. He goes on this like huge anti-God rant. Wow. For those times. And Homei is um, very obviously Flaubert's like authorial insert because Omei is not strictly necessary to this entire fucking story, but he's in it a lot once he enters the story. And it's all in shit that is not strictly even a part of the A plot of the novel. It's just long rants about things that are going on politically and philosophically and scientifically in the 1800s in France that Flaubert was obviously just like, man, I really want to write about all of this shit. Yeah. Let me add in a character. That's just my views on the world. Literally that there's no other reason for Homé to be a character, honestly, in, in terms of how large of his presence it, it has in this novel, there's just no need for it. But it's there. So anyway, the Bovaries arrive in the evening one day after there's this huge delay. Emma's beloved dog ran out of the carriage and is now lost. So that's an even larger loss for her. And they have dinner at the inn. 
with the pharmacist and a clerk. So a clerk here is um, a law student, basically. This clerk lodges at the pharmacy. The pharmacist is his landlord, essentially. This clerk is named Leon. And Emma clearly gets along very well with him. They have like the same fanciful interests and temperament, clearly. The pharmacist, as I've mentioned, is a very long-winded dude. And so they have a long night of talk and they go to their new house finally. And time passes here. We learn Ome doesn't actually have a doctor license and was once in trouble with the law for it. And Charles is depressed because the patients are, aren't flooding in. So money is tight right now. Emma has her baby and names her Bertha, or I guess that would be like the English translation. In French, it would probably be like Bert or birth. And so there's this really gross interlude after the baby is born where the elder Monsieur Bovary, Charles's father, is like at the house visiting with, you know, um, he's the grandfather with the grandmother and they're visiting the new grandbaby but he's so sleazy around Emma while visiting that his wife makes them both leave early from the visit so that he doesn't actually make a real pass at her. It's so wild and it's dropped so quickly and then just continued for, yeah. (laughs) Katie is miming throwing up right now. (laughs) Same. So Leon and she get close during this time. They like walk alone together at one point to see her baby, which is getting taken care of right now. Um, it's being wet nursed, right? Um, by a peasant woman who is like this carpenter's wife. The narrative tells us that the town does take note of and believes that her walking around with Leon alone and all of that stuff is so untoward. But anyway, they walk back after visiting the baby And sparks are clearly flying, but they don't say or do anything explicit. And afterward, Leon thinks about how fucked he is, essentially, because he is so bored that he is that he's obviously apparently going to have an affair with a married woman, (laughs) because that's just obviously where this is going to lead for him. And he's like, damn, Leon sounds like a fuck boy. You only think you've met fuck boys in this stupid <laughs> story. So all the neighbors fall into this routine of hanging out. Leon and Emma, like I said, are getting closer. Charles is not a jealous dude just by nature, but yeah. everyone else around him is clearly like clocking. This is romantic. And they like mention it even around Leon a lot. Like they tease him and accuse him of it. And it's strange. And Emma is falling in love, but she just doesn't know it or maybe just doesn't want to realize it fully. Um, She does finally realize it with a huge thud and it changes everything. She now withdraws from Leon and devotes herself on the outside, at least to being literally like the saint martyr, perfect wife thing. It's such a change that even the other townspeople are noticing and praising her for her goodliness and her charity and all of these things. And Leon is devastated, obviously, as he watches her clearly to him be in love wholly with her own husband and uh, wants to like have this kill his love for her, but it actually makes it worse. He loves her more for her virtuousness. 
And she is both loving and hating it all, of course, because she loves that she is suffering so much because, oh, what drama and intrigue and what a life. But she hates it because she is not happy. She knows she will never be happy with Charles and the life that she has now. And she hates having to choke her unhappiness back to pretend to be happy because that's the game, right? Was divorce just like not a thing at this time? Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. There we're in catholic reign in france territory right now so okay yeah no <laughs> zero zero divorce options available got it so she goes to the church at one point presumably to confess but the priest just doesn't even like notice she needs help like she attempts to broach it a few times and then just gives up or loses her nerve after like four times of him interrupting her or misunderstanding her statements and she's in such a bad mood once in this interval that she literally shoves her child who like, yeah, by the way, she like gave birth and stuff. Right. Like I said that, I think, yeah, I did. I mentioned the baby name, but she literally shoves her child at one point who falls and cuts her cheek on some furniture. And then she's of course, immediately upset at herself for this, but the baby is fine. And Leon is depressed right now too. And it's so bad that he decides that since he has to go to Paris all the time anyway, for his studies, right? He may as well just move there. What's the use of him being here? He's wasting away his love and it's a hopeless love, right? So he makes the arrangements to do that. Very smart. And he says goodbye to everyone, including Emma. And it's a very anticlimactic departure. They both are very clearly in love and they say nothing about it. And then he just leaves. So now Emma is even more depressed and it happens in the same way that it happened previously in their previous town that they lived in but it's worse and it is so bad Charles calls his mother and they like she decides the mom decides that oh you just can't let her read novels anymore it makes her worse right okay Beauty and the Beast chill out right god forbid a woman like have an imagination or something so how dare you read (laughs) it's not normal well it puts ideas into your head Katie obviously otherwise why would Madame Bovary be like this I'm just saying. Yeah, very Gaston of you. (laughs) So one day, a man named Rodolphe Boulanger shows up with a servant. The servant needs to be bled. Charles obliges, and both the servant and Justin, uh, who is Ome's servant, right? Their neighbor, the pharmacist, has a servant named Justin. And the servant that Boulanger brought, who is getting bled, and Justin both faint. And Emma has to help revive them. So when this happens, Boulanger gets a very big eyeful of Emma and likes what he gets there. And after he leaves, we get his thoughts. And he is very obviously a sleaze. He has had mistresses before. And he reads Emma to filth like perfectly accurately in his mind. And is he just decides, I'm going to fuck her. I'll figure out a way to do it, basically. So there's this agricultural show that is here in Yonville, which is the place that they have moved to. Rodolphe is going to set some groundwork for his affair here at this agricultural show. Yes, like an Aggie show, like fucking FFA shit, like cows and pigs and goats and stuff. Yes, that. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. while there, Rodolphe makes sure that he and Emma end up watching the proceedings and the winnings and the ceremonies alone in like a secluded spot. And he does a very effective job at being the cliche fuckboy manipulating Romeo dude that we all know and hate. And Emma falls hella for it. They're into each other. Although she is more into the idea of romance than really romance with him, right? 
she keeps thinking of Leon the whole time. Anyway, afterwards, they all go home and he doesn't show himself for over a month because, you know, keep them on their toes. Am I right? Am I right? Uh, When he comes back, he suggests to Charles that for her health, she should take up horseback riding. Why don't you ride? And Boulanger is like, well, you could ride with me. I have an extra horse you can use just to try it. And Charles, of course, thinks this is a marvelous idea. So Emma and Rodolfo go. He takes her to a meadow or some shit. This is like, I mean, Edward Cullen to the max. Let's go to this beautiful meadow. And at first he tries to force her, but she gets scared and insists that they stop. And so he changes his tactic and basically just holds onto her begging until she finally gives in. And yes, it is sex. They have sex. So after- Oh, fuck. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he begs oh her into rape mm-hmm. oh yeah what <laughs> yeah this this book is wild ride and it's only just begun like this is maybe a fourth to a third of the way in maybe oh my so much god. has happened already oh and my god not even close to being over <laughs> did he just like fucking stockholm syndrome her oh yeah oh Just, for sure you want me to read the exchange like he was <laughs> no you don't have to read it i'm just like <laughs> he just like i yeah i'm not met like, for like a I'm second and then they went horseback riding yes yeah and he just held on to her and gave her stockholm syndrome until she banged him yep that is that is point blank 1000 percent what happened it's wild <laughs> <laughs> oh my god <laughs> this book is insane okay so what? afterwards charles buys her a horse of her own so she can keep riding because charles is a great fucking husband <laughs> so when they go out every time emma and rudolph go out they have sex she's a lover now like all of her novels and oh man this is her fantasy she is living it up and she, it's she's living it up too hard So one morning she can't even wait. And so right after Charles leaves for work, she runs to Rudolph's house and surprises Rudolph. And for a while she continues to do this like morning after morning. And they have a lot of sex. And then very abruptly, he's like, all right, this is enough girl. Like you're jeopardizing your reputation. And she's like, you right, you right. In fact, one of the mornings she's coming home She's coming home like paranoid. And sure enough, there's a neighborhood dude out duck hunting. He's doing it illegally at this moment. And so he like has more to be worried about than like whatever it is she's doing. But he is like, whoa, hey, fancy meeting you here. And she's like, "Uh, yeah, anyway, bye. And he doesn't really think anything of it (laughs) upon first seeing her. But she acts so strange and abrupt that she convinces herself that he probably suspects exactly what was happening and she has zero chill about it she like sees him later in the pharmacy and is just strange as fuck it is zero chill to the max so finally she and Rodolfo are like all right well, we got to find a better way to be doing this so here is their better way in the dead of night after charles has gone to bed he comes to her garden and they fuck in the damn garden <laughs> And this, is this a romance novel? Because this is reading supposedly. like a romance novel right now. Supposedly. Yeah. This is very much like a one of those ones you'd find that has like Fabio on the cover or it's just oh, like 
Hands down, that is exactly what this is. Here's 800 different versions and words. Honestly, to say I didn't dick. Say that because romance novels are better than this, to be fair. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. It kind of <laughs> sounds like it. This is like a bougie, <laughs> pretentious French romance novel. Mm. So this this garden middle of the night sex renews the excitement for a while, but not really for long. She is getting too clingy for Rudolph and too obsessed. Like she cuts a lock of their hair to like twine together and she gets miniatures of each other for them to have. And she's asking for a ring. And he is like, all right. Well, cool. You know, she super loves me. That's for sure. So I don't have to try so hard anymore to like pretend to be a nice guy. I can like be the sleaze that I am. And he gradually does become that. And she sees this happening and is appalled by it. And, and that she's found herself in this position and that it was not a good decision, off, obviously, after all. Like, no shit, babe. But now she's finally figuring it out. So I guess points are finally getting there. So she starts pulling away from Rodolphe and he is like pshaw about it, basically. And she's like, man, I actually don't have it that bad. Like with my husband, why can't I just love my husband? Like I really do have it good, actually. <laughs> good point, girl. Where you yeah. been? <laughs> Thank you for like finally figuring that out. Is a, It's a great moment. And like Flaubert actually describes it very well in the moment. It's something like, she finally is is realizing that she wants something to hold on to that is more solid than love. And uh, it's it's a very poignantly phrased moment in the novel, the shit show of the normal descriptions of this novel. But don't worry, it doesn't last very long, okay? So here's what happens. Almeis decides Charles should make a name for himself by doing this like experimental podiatry, essentially. This is his aim because there's this club-footed stable boy from the inn named Ippolite. So it's easy for Charles to access. And the real motivation here is Ome wants to bring fame and notoriety to his place and he can attach himself tangentially to it, right? So that's what he's trying to push here. And Charles is very unsure about doing this, but Emma sees an opportunity to be virtuous and support her husband. So she encourages him too. Like his reputation will soar. What's to lose, right? Only like everything if he does his shit wrong, but you know, okay, that's fine. See, he studies a ton about feet and then he snips Hippolyte's Achilles tendon. And at first it's fine and dandy. But soon his foot and leg and then into his abdomen they goes gangrene because fucking duh. And it's so bad that they have to call like a hotshot surgeon from a bigger area away who comes in and berates everyone involved in this for the stupidity of it. And he has to amputate Ippolite's leg. And so now Emma is like, yeah, fuck being virtuous. I hate Charles. Why did I ever think he could be good at something And it's like, girl, he would not have done this at all if you hadn't pushed him to, but okay. (laughs) So now she's like, yeah, I'm back on with Rudolph. I feel no shame anymore. So they be fucking all the time again. And it is as tempestuous as ever. And dude, like, it's been a long time now. It's been four years of the affair. It is so bad that rumors are spreading about her and even her mom-in-law has heard them. And she's finally like, okay, Rodolph, 
take me away. It's time. And he's like, oh, okay, but where and how? And you have a kid? And she's like, oh, we'll take her with us. That's fine. <laughs> but like, and- why would he want to, why would this fuck boy want to be a dad? This is what I'm saying. This is what I'm saying. So she's now excited and thrilled to finally be leaving Charles and this life to start a new one. So she makes preparations with this fine goods merchant who like has been selling her like underhanded goods, essentially like a layaway. He's like her Sears catalog, right? Mm-hmm. And um, she makes preparations and buys like traveling stuff from him. She's been in trouble with him before for paying for things to like gift Rudolph essentially and uh Rudolph puts this off for months the fi- but then finally they have a decided day and it's tomorrow and they have this tryst and after they have sex he leaves and he's like man that bitch is crazy well that was fun on to new waters for me and we get to read Rudolph write his scoundrel letter making it seem you know as if it's for her own good and oh he just loves her too much to ruin her but he legit does not care it is made very apparent in the narrative he doesn't give a single shit and does not believe anything of what he's writing so he sends the letter to her and she gets it she rushes upstairs to read it she's in a right tizzy over it obviously and considers throwing herself out the window to her death but before that charles comes home for a meal and she has to pretend to be okay, but she can't. She eventually sees Rudolph out the window in the act of like actually leaving and she faints. They take her upstairs to bed rest and she's delirious. She's talking about where the letter is for like 43 fucking days. This bitch is basically catatonic and Charles is happy to see her improve slightly eventually, but it gets worse again very quickly. So more months of recovery And Leroux, who is the fine merchant that she bought the stuff from, like her traveling preparations, he delivers those goods that she bought. And Charles is like, we do not want this. I do not. I did not order this. But they can't get out of it because Leroux is like, somebody fucking ordered these. So here you go. And so now he owes Leroux and he asks for a large loan from Leroux um, because the debt from dealing with Emma's illness is staggering at this point. So Leroux is a like a capitalist monopoly man, essentially. That is 1000% exactly what's happening. So he's like, oh yeah, absolutely. Here's that money. Here's a contract too. Here, you know what? You pay back all that you owe me in a year. Okay, okay, this is cool. So Emma gradually begins getting better and she gets very pious for a while. She, But she loses interest in that very quickly. And um, her manners have definitely changed. She's more generous and humble for a while. But again, that does not last. Ome suggests that they go to the theater in a nearby like large city or town or whatever. Like it'll do Emma some good. And Charles like knows his wife, maybe even better than the narrative gives him credit for here because he is like, that's like, like actually a fucking great idea. She'd love that. She would love going to the theater. Yeah, let's do it. So he convinces her to go. They go. She loves the first two acts. She's in Rapture. She's living it up. And then after the second act, Charles goes to get her some water and he comes back and is like, whoa, dude, like, look who I ran into in the fucking lobby or whatever. It's fucking Leon. And she's like, oh, hi. And so he sits with them when the third act begins. But now Emma doesn't give a fuck about the opera anymore. So they all three decide to leave early to catch dinner together instead and catch up. And Leon is like, 
hey, yeah, there's this other killer performance of something from someone or other weather tomorrow. Like, y'all should stay. And Charles was like, oh, I can't. Like, I have to go back to work tomorrow. But Emma could if she wants. And she's like, uh. And Charles was like, no, 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 it's okay. You can just sleep on it, babe. And you can decide in the morning. It's fine. So they part to go back to their hotel. And we learn briefly here that Leon had, of course, when he left, eventually forgotten about Emma but not immediately. He had held that torch for a while, his quote unquote torch. Um, But now seeing her again so suddenly, his passion has returned just as fresh, right? So he comes to see her the next morning in her hotel and Charles is already gone. And yes, she has stayed. And they stay inside and talk literally all day. And they catch up on their like real emotions. They avoid some subjects like Rudolph, for example, but otherwise they get on very well, just like they usually always did. And finally, it's put plainly out loud for the first time between them that he loves her. And she actually insists that they can't have an affair. And he begs her to stay just one more day so that he can see her one last time. So she agrees to meet him the next day in the church. They go, they get in a stagecoach cab, essentially, like like a taxi, but a stagecoach taxi. <laughs> like a horse and carriage taxi and they literally drive around all day fucking each other in that wagon (laughs) but like who is driving this (laughs) and is just like not gonna say that anything about he can't see anything in that wagon he's out you hear things oh i mean can you when you're like when there's a bunch of sound of the horse clippity cloppeting and the wheels are richety ratcheting and like yeah, every time he stops somewhere, they're they just yell from the stagecoach from like the cabin, keep going. <laughs> yeah, I feel like you could still hear it though. Cause you're seated like in a in a stagecoach situation like that. The cab is like this little box, and at the front of the box, there's a seat where the person who's driving it is sitting. Like mm-hmm. there's not that much protecting you from the stagecoach driver but who cares i mean what does this taxi driver motherfucking care about the crazy people having sex in his cabin he gets paid for it he could extort them because she's having an affair i mean he gets paid handsomely for his thing he don't give a fuck i'd also he doesn't know either them. of these people <laughs> so <laughs> they have sex literally all day in this fucking stagecoach taxi i think i'm most confused at how she hasn't become pregnant yet because they've been fucking for four years and there's zero birth control thank you she had a kid so she can clearly get pregnant that's not the problem and she like how has she not had several kids at this point yeah i don't understand because presumably she's also still like keeping up appearances and fucking charles you know what i'm saying yeah so it's three dudes now three dudes now in the mix here but only one child was had and it was only with charles okay sure sure flaubert whatever i'll buy that i guess so she finally gets out at the end of the day at her hotel and she has literally missed her coach for home so when she finally gets home there's this huge commotion because charles's father has died so now the family is going into mourning and his mother is with them while this is happening And Leroux is here talking about renewing the contract because it's due soon. 
And so he makes Emma his sort of pseudo student on quote unquote money matters so that she and him can be the only ones doing the money shit without Charles involved. This is him essentially blackmailing her with his knowledge of her ordering like old things that were for her lover. So we'll talk about exploitation. LaRoe is an exploiter for sure and does do that here. So Emma draws up this new contract for Charles that passes all of the financial responsibility to herself. But she suggests that they should have someone in the law check it out to make sure it's good, right? Well, hey, we just saw Leon. What about Leon? And Charles is like, that's a great idea. So she goes and with permission to see Leon and they have sex for like three days <laughs> together. So now they're definitely having like a full affair. So she convinces Charles that she needs piano lessons in the city at least once a week. So now she goes regularly to see Leon and she's becoming brazen once again, just like with Rodolphe, and it's causing problems. Charles meets her supposed teacher, but the teacher doesn't remember her, right? So she produces fake receipts to prove that she goes. And Leroux sees her with Leon, so now he's got even more blackmail on her. And he leverages this to force her to sell a part of her father's property to pay off her very high debt now but then convinces her to do another contract instead afterwards. So essentially think of it like this. He's having her open new credit lines every time to pay for an old credit line. And it all goes eventually back to him, right? That's what's happening here. Think of it like every time you needed to buy something, you opened a credit card, you paid for everything on that credit card. And then when you actually have to pay the bill, you open a new credit card line to pay for that old credit bill. In perpetuity, right? Yeah, eventually they stop giving you credit cards. <laughs> oh, don't worry. We'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there. <laughs> so, so one time part of her bill comes when she's gone and Charles is very distressed by this. So she has to explain it away and they have to redo the power of attorney because his mother had like forced him to trash it at one point. She pretends to fall ill or whatever. And she like whatever she wants now. And she like sees Leon even not on their normal days. And she's like interrupting his work. And one day Ome comes to hang out with Leon all day on the same day that he normally spends with Emma. And he can't like reasonably get out of that because that would be suspicious as fuck. (laughs) And so then she gets very pissed off about that and flies into a rage. And it's disintegrating around them both here. And they both feel it. And apparently just can't do anything about it. Neither of them really want the affair anymore. Like his boss has learned of it because someone anonymously told his mother <laughs> who told his boss. What and so his boss, so his boss scolds him about it. But neither of them seem capable of just like going, okay, we're done now. <laughs> like it would be very easy, but apparently neither of them can do that. It's absurd. So basically she goes into this very manic spiral. She is spending and going out and about wherever, whenever she wants. Uh, It finally, like at one point, she finds herself in very low company after a ball, dressed ridiculous one night and comes home afterward, feeling like a little sobered, only to realize that LaRoe, through a third party now, is basically turning her over to the law for the massive amount of debt she owes him. So she goes to beg him and he has zero fucks to give her. So she manages to keep literally what's next from Charles by the skin of her teeth. Appraisers come to her house because they're going to sell her property, right? That's what happens when you are bankrupt and you can't pay your bills. 
Your property I mean, yes, gets but it's, but it's not her property. She was a woman. Oh no, it is. Remember the power of attorney. She had a she had all of the money matters. What's what's mine is yours. All of that property, what she spends is Charles, right? So yeah. Okay. So she goes to anyone and everyone, but she cannot get anyone to give her money. She goes to Leon and begs him for the money. And he says, he, oh, I have a rich friend who may be able to help. And he'll, um, he'll, I'll be back with the money tomorrow. And he's lying. Duh. And she knows it, honestly. So she goes to this other law type dude in town and she begs for his help. And he is like, hmm, sure, if you fuck me, essentially. And she's like, absolutely not. And leaves and goes home and waits for the shoe to drop. And then when Charles does come home, she can't actually face him. So she rushes off. She goes to the tax collector and she begs him for help. And now she tries to seduce him for this. And she's witnessed doing this by some neighbors and that doesn't work. So she rushes off to hide and grieve, basically. Finally, she like hits herself literally hits herself in the head and realizes, though, Rod- Rodolph, I could go to Rodolph. He exists still. I know where he is. So she goes to his old estate to see if he's around and see if she can get him to do what she needs. She goes, he's there. She asks, he doesn't have any. So she leaves. She goes to Omez and has Justin let her into his private, the, the pharmacist's private little room where the arsenic is. And she takes it and swallows a bunch of arsenic. And makes Justin swear not to tell and then leaves and goes back home. And Charles, who has been desperately searching for her since she left, like the day before, comes home to find her finishing a letter. And she lays in bed and she begins being ill, very obviously. And he finally convinces her to let him read the letter. She was insistent at first that he wait until tomorrow. But finally, he reads it and learns she's poisoned herself and calls the doctor from the big area and then even like a bigger and more prestigious doctor, too. And Omez comes and they all begin trying to make her better, but they don't succeed. It is hopeless. The uber prestigious doctor leaves and she has the priest come to give her her last rites and she fucking dies. So there's mourning and waiting for Charles to set funeral arrangements for them uh, and for them, the arrangements to be made out. And the body stays where it is during that time. Ome and the clergy dude are sitting vigil for it, essentially, while this is occurring. Her dad comes and it's really sad and they have the funeral. And afterward, her dad leaves and Charles and his mom talk and she's going to come live with him now. And Justin, the Ome's servant, who was like, secretly obviously in love with emma like the entire time like just in, he's like a young dude he's like a like a teen right he was just adored her and he lays at her grave all night sobbing over it and charles is ruined after this he doesn't care about anything except bertha his daughter but he doesn't really take care of her at all he just loves her like without actually like being a responsible parent about it right and he has no money because of emma's bills and he racks up his own afterward because he has nothing to do but borrow more money so he goes further and further down and he loses everything and then he learns finally of emma's affairs finally because first he finds rodolph's letter in the attic from when she had like dropped it and then he finds all of leon's letters in one of her drawers so he and rodolph have a pint together at a bar And Charles doesn't hold it against him 
because he's Charles. And he then sits in his garden and literally dies on the spot. And his daughter finds him later in the garden. So she is sent to live with his mother first, but her grandmother dies that same year. So then, she is, so then she is sent to live with a distant aunt, but she has to work in a cotton mill to earn her living. Why wouldn't she get sent to live with Emma's dad? Uh, because he was already dead, I believe, at that point. Yeah. Oh, okay. And that's the end. <laughs> the face. The face. What the fuck? Yeah. That's the fastest we've ever gotten through a book review because that was only like an hour. I, I, listen, I condensed so fucking much because this book is a grueling nightmare to read. So much that I didn't cover is literally just because there's descriptions after descriptions of shit that you don't need to read about. But I'll get there. I have to finish my notes. Okay, so... Um, like I said, it is estimated that these events are between like 1827 and 1846, like the amount of time and like what happens all throughout. So this time in France's history roughly corresponds with something called the July monarchy. The July monarchy was a liberal constitutional monarchy. It was under Louis-Philippe I, and it started on the 26th of the July in 1830 with the July Revolution, and it ends in February of 1848 with the Revolution of 1848. It began with the overthrow of the conservative government of Charles X, um, who was the last king of the House of Bourbon. Louis-Philippe was like, of, like more liberal of um, in the House of Bourbon, and he like proclaims himself the king of the French rather than king of France. He promised to follow essentially what we would call the middle of the road. So he promises to follow the, to not to avoid the extremes of both um, the conservative supporters and the radical people on the left of Charles X's supporters, essentially. It was just a shit show of wealthy bourgeoisie people and numerous like Napoleonic um, off officials or former, I guess, Napoleonic officials. And even though he said he was going to follow the middle of the road, it was very clearly still conservative policies happening, um, especially under the influence of um, Francois Guizot. And the king like promised friendship uh, with the UK and he was all about colonial expansion. So he was like the reason that the French conquest of Algeria was occurring, which is super fucked up and awful. Um, and finally in 1848, the king's popularity had just collapsed at that point because he had not, you know, he had not followed a single promise that he had made and he was then overthrown, right? So that's the political surroundings in which Flaubert is setting his novel. And he was an what we would call a realist, a, like a literary realism writer. He obviously knew the regional setting in which his like story was taking place. And so he writes about specific concrete details of like the mundane things of real life. And so that is essentially what literary realism is. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's 
this devotion to being super concrete and grounded in reality, right? And in some ways, this is a very interesting inspiration for the literary realism movements, but I honestly have a problem with that. We'll get into it in a little while, but his style was very important to Flaubert. So like he's likened to James Joyce, for instance, and Virginia Woolf in the terms of like how important literary realism is to him, but it was actually used against the book when it was put on trial for obscenity. Yes. The book was see that (laughs) the book was put on trial for obscenity. It was such a quote unquote obscene book that the public decided that it was so immoral that it should not be allowed to exist, essentially. And the lead prosecutor argued that the realism in the literature was an offense against art and decency just in general. That like, that's not what art is for, which is dumb, a super dumb argument, but that's what he, like, he used it against the book. I mean, that's the argument in cinema right now is, yeah, soup, everyone who's like an artsy fartsy director is like, oh, superhero movies are ruining, they're ruining cinema, like superhero films and action films, blockbusters are ruining cinema, like, uh, go fuck yourself, like. Well, the problem is that, like, it depends on who the audience is, right? And there are audiences for all different types of art. And that's yeah. the problem here. That is that there is definitely a, an audience for realism in literature, for sure. The The question is, like, th- this falls into, we've had this discussion before, of the idea of, like, oh, you know, if something is too, quote unquote, problematic, then it shouldn't be allowed because then it is quote unquote glorifying or not, you know, outright condemning the behavior. And that is the exact argument that is being made against Madame Bovary when it goes up to trial. Like they are basically saying, no, the woman has a bunch of adulterous sex and is a, you know, really bad with her money. And we can't have people reading that that is not okay because it is immoral. And it's like, listen, I'm not going to go to bat for this fucking book by any stretch of the imagination. I I hate it. It's not a good book. But you can't ban art because it's quote unquote immoral. That's not the answer to having moral problems in society. But the problem is that when you start having questions like that and people start making those arguments, you find yourself in that situation where, uh, well, oh no, art can't be real. It has to only be fantastical. Oh no way, art has to be real, but it only has to be the, the most perfect form of real, right? So which is it? Is it supposed to be fantastical in the sense of like, oh, you know, true love and happiness is only a fantasy? Or is it supposed to be real in the sense of, you know, there are people out there who really have affairs, right? This is definitely dramatic, right? That's but that's the whole point of art is it's it's a hyperbolic exaggerated form of reality. That's just the nature of art no matter how real you're going to try and get at it, right? Sorry, I don't need to be going on a rant here about this. We've had this rant already on this show. No, but you're fine. Go the ahead. The moral the moral of the story is just that 
it happened just like it happens, just like we've had conversations about book banning and stuff, just like there are books banning going on across the US right now. Um, and it's really bad. It's never a good idea. Like it doesn't matter how good or bad a story is. You can't just ban it because bad things happen or immoral things happen in it. That is what they tried to do with Madame Bovary. They did not succeed. They lost the trial, which it was the correct thing, no matter how I personally feel about the book. Um, that was the correct outcome because you can't it, it just that's not the way to fix the problem. The problem is you have to focus on the people. This is the, you know, the, oh, violent video games, make kid violent, make kids violent, or, you know, uh, movies make serial killers kill, or, you know, porn makes pedophiles be pedophile. Like, no, no, no. You have to actually like look at the person and not the art. Anyway, realism in literature was obviously in part a reaction against romanticism, right? And Emma is very obviously the embodiment of a romantic figure, right? She has this mental and emotional process where she like, she does not give a shit about the realities of her world, right? She has to function in them, but they're a secondary concern to her. And Flaubert, like he may seem sometimes identify with Emma, like potentially that's why he wrote her he mocks her romantic daydreaming and her taste in literature like later in letters and interviews right he like distances himself from it and that's why I say that his literary insert is very obviously Omey and not Madame Bovary right because I glossed over a shit ton of the stuff that happens with Omey as a character in the book because it's really just not relevant to the A plot story, but it was so relevant enough that he dedicated good chunks of story to Omey's opinions and his thoughts about what's going on politically and, you know, scientifically in France, right? And his ambitions and his like relationship with religion and the church and like he has this like dynamic with the church guy in the town where they like they're at odds because he's very anti-religion but they still end up becoming friends at the end and it's like this weird b plot that it's like dude if that's the story you wanted to write you should have just wrote that story you should not have masked it and slid it in under a, a really really bad harlequin romance right yeah. You should, there were better ways to do this. So a lot of people love this book and consider it the perfect novel. They're just basically up his ass about the realistic nature of it. Like they contract, they contrast it to how very poetically structured it is, which I will give them that. There are times in the, the story, like I already mentioned, that it's very poetically, beautifully explained or written in prose. I will give this here too that maybe there's something lost in translation whereas maybe in French it hits different than when we translate it into the English version of it it exemplifies this tendency of realism over the course of the whole like 19th century where it becomes increasingly very psychological like um cons like the accurate representation of thoughts and emotions rather than e external things. And that is true, but I will say that 
there are some parts in this book where he literally describes shit that nobody gives a flying fuck about and nobody need to read nobody needed to read that description i don't care how poetically it was written it it contributed nothing to the story yeah Anyway, film adaptations. Um, there are lots and lots and lots of film adaptations of Madame Bovary, but the ones that I do want to shout out here because I don't need to go through a whole long list is there is a Hindi language film adaptation um, starring Deepa Sai. There is a, that was in 1983. And then there is a 2014 Madame Bovary that was uh, starring Mia Wasikowska, Henry Lloyd Hughes, Paul Giamatti, and Ezra Miller. Is the Mia girl, is that the girl who played Alice from Alice in Wonderland? I think so. I can never pronounce her last name, so. I think it's Wasikowski. Yeah, Wasikowski. Okay, that sounds right. Wasikowska? I don't know. Yeah, that's got to be her then. That's the girl who played Alice from Alice in Wonderland. But Ezra Miller is in it. Holy shit. And who's Paul Giamatti in it? (laughs) Anyway. Probably the, the husband. I don't know. That seems like a kind of an older role for him in 2014. Or be the dad. Yeah, the dad, or maybe Ome. I could see him being Ome. Or the the guy who the lone guy. I could just look this up, but I don't care enough to look it up. That's fine. Otherwise, I would have done it. Anyway, there was also a 2000 TV series adaptation that was made for the BBC's, um, and Hugh Dancy was in it. So I don't know who that is. Oh, yeah, you do. Hugh Dancy is um like, uh, did you ever watch Hannibal? Nope. No. Oh, you definitely know who Hugh Dancy is. You you saw him in uh, Confessions of the Shopaholic. He's the heartthrob. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Got it. Anyway, this whole like lit realism thing. So here are my personal feelings here, okay? Like, it, it's fine. But the, like I said, there's just an, a lot of unnecessary descriptions that like don't really have any real significance to the plot. For some people, that floats their boat so damn hard and they just love it like wow it's so real it's oh fuck me up daddy it's so real but like you know for me personally I just don't need to know every single fucking thing on the dining table on the wedding feast right or like what every single wedding guest was wearing because we don't fucking see them ever again nobody gives a flying fuck about it right but then he gives you shit like this this is one of the best written metaphorical descriptions of love that I've personally ever read. She never asked herself whether she loved him. Love, she believed, should come upon you suddenly with thunderclaps and blinding flashes of lightning, bursting like a hurricane out of the skies and into your life, turning everything upside down, sweeping your will along like a leaf in the gale and carrying with it into the void the whole of your heart. She did not know that when the gutters of a house are blocked up, the rain collects in pools on the roof. And so she would have gone on feeling perfectly safe had she not suddenly discovered a crack in the wall. Like, that's some poetic motherfucking shit. That's the kind of fucking description, descriptive shit I'm fucking here for, right? Flaubert puts that in the same fucking book where he, I'm not kidding, describes every single thing on the dining table of the wedding feast every single thing that every wedding guest is wearing we don't know anything about them you never fucking see them again nobody fucking cares i don't care how real it is you can describe one of the things that they're wearing i will give you that i don't need to know every single fucking thing jesus christ dude 
There's also a lot of political commentary in the book that I did not touch on because I just don't have any capacity to talk about it. But it is very interesting. Like there's this part in the, like the ag show where it like resounds real heavily with a 2022 mindset. So like the counselor is making a a speech at the ag show and he is essentially the politician here talking to all of these rural farmers who are you know probably very disillusioned with highfalutin people and the bourgeoisie and government i turn my eyes to the present state of our fair homeland what do i see here i see commerce and the arts flourishing everywhere everywhere i see new channels of communication like so many new arteries that create new relationships within the body politic our great manufacturing centers are thriving once again religion now more securely grounded smiles in all our hearts our ports are full our confidence restored and france breathes again at last like i feel like flaubert definitely would have written an exaggerated satire about MAGA people (laughs) make America great again, because that is essentially what I read right here, which was like, we've made France great again. Right. And that's like this dude's whole speech. And so remember that this is happening in the July monarchy and wow, that's some political fucking commentary. So if you're interested in that kind of stuff and like how old patterns repeat themselves in politics, there you go. This book is also just FYI racist, okay? There's some awful things that are, I mean, like it's throwaway, it's quote unquote throwaway comments, but it reveals, unfortunately, the racism that is inherent in the story and it's like black people racism or Swana people racism. So that's like Southwest Asia, Northern Africa people. There's anti-Semitism, there's anti-Semitic comments, um, racist, racist comments about Algerian people, And the book is also kind of graphic. So like there's this end part where like Emma's dead and there's descriptions of her dead body and like how everyone's lingering and like her body is just in the room for four days. And like, yeah, that's that's very realistic. And to be honest, like I'm honest, I'm okay with that sort of literary realism because that's fucking interesting. That's horrific. Like that's kind of why people I'm some people, you know, watch horror. Right. And there's a horror edge there at the end. Um, it goes on a bit much, but it's there. It would smell so bad. So bad. I mean, the 1800s as a whole, I'm sure smelled just horrific. So that is my end of notes for the story. And I just have a little bit about Flaubert now. So Flaubert was born in Rouen, which is the region in which this whole book is set. And he was the second son of Anne Justine Caroline. And God, I cannot say this dude's name. Achille Cleophas Flaubert, who was the director and senior surgeon of the major hospital in Rouen. And Flaubert began writing at an early age, at as early as eight, according to some people. He was educated and he did not leave his education until 1840 when he went to Paris to study law. And in Paris, he like found the whole city and area just very distasteful. He made a few acquaintances, including Victor Hugo, author of Les Mis. Just fun fact there. And More then depression. Toward- <laughs> all, the, all the depression. Toward the end of 1840, he traveled um, to the Pyrenees and to Corsica. And in 1846, he had an, an epileptic attack. And so he left Paris and abandoned law and um, 
politically, he hated like despotism of all kinds. He celebrated like every sort of like protest of the individual against power and monopolies, which makes sense given some of the like antagonism and some of the like things going on in that book. He was a well-traveled dude. He traveled with his lifelong friend, Maxime Ducamp. Uh, he traveled to Brittany in 1846 and from 1849 to 50, he went on this long journey in the Middle East and then visited Greece and Egypt. In Beirut, he contracted syphilis and he spent five weeks in Istanbul in 1850 and he visited Carthage in 1858. So yeah, well fucking traveled dude. He dated and stuff, but he never married and never had children. Uh, his reason for not having children basically is revealed when he like wrote a letter to his like one of his gfs his girlfriends who was a poet named Collet, and this was maybe like his only serious relationship that he ever had and it was dated in uh december 11th of 1852 that he basically says that he's opposed to childbirth because he would quote transmit to no one the aggravations and the disgrace of existence unquote that's a wowser statement. Wait, say that again? He did not want to, quote, transmit to anyone the aggra- aggravations and the disgrace of existence. I mean, that's fair. You don't want to bring a kid into a world that's shit, so. Yeah, mm-hmm. essentially is what he's saying. That's there. a common a common theme around no kids people right now. Right. Why yeah. would I bring a kid into a world that's just going to shit on them and be garbage? Like, Right. So he was very open about his sexual activities. He like often like did it with prostitutes. Sounds like France. And he had like some weird like growth or like sore or something on his penis. And he was like, oh, I'm pretty sure I got this from like a like a Turkish girl that I had sex with once. And he was also bisexual. He engaged in intercourse with male prostitutes in Beirut and Egypt because that is obviously the theme of me in this podcast I just get to talk about all of the people who wrote classic novels who are surprise surprise queer in the 1870s it was a really hard time for him Prussian soldiers occupied his house during the war of 1870 and then his mother died in 1872 and then after she died He fell into a lot of financial issues, Um, like there was a bunch of business failures of his niece's husband. And then, like I said, he suffered from venereal diseases. So um, he his health just kind of rapidly declined. And then he died uh, of a cerebral hemorrhage in 1880 at the age of 58. And uh, he was buried in his family vault in the cemetery of one. He was a devoted Spinozist. So Spinozism is a philosophical system that defines God as a single self-subsistent substance. So matter and thought are attributes of this singular God-like form. For Spinoza, Baruch Spinoza, who began this philosophical like idea, the universe or the cosmos is a mode under which infinite attributes which we can perceive thought and extension occurs. God apparently has infinitely many other attributes which are not present even in our world. And Flaubert was also a pantheist. So pantheism is the belief that reality is identical with divinity. So all things 
compose this sort of all-encompassing imminent god or goddess figure. It's not recognizing, it doesn't have like a distinct or personal god like that's anthropomorphic or or otherwise like depicted. It is just like, it's this broad sort of like gathering of different doctrines and forms of like relationships between what is real and what is divine. And this is like pantheism is like a thousand year old sort of concept um, in various different religions. So, but it was popularized in Western culture as in like by the 17th century philosopher Baruch Spinoza. And it existed, of course, um, before then in South and Eastern, like Asian religions, like Sikhism and Hinduism um, and Confucianism and Taoism are pantheistic for sure. So his writing career in September 1849, of course, Flaubert completed the first version of a novel, which was called The Temptation of St. Anthony. And he read it aloud to his friends over the course of four days, not really allowing them to give any opinions. And at the end of the reading, his friends really basically just told him to throw it in the fire. Damn. (laughs) God damn. Yeah. So in 1850, after he returned from Egypt, uh, he began working on Madame Bovary and uh, it took him five years to write. It was originally a serial publication in 1856 and the government, um, like I said, originally or earlier, it brought an action against him and the publisher on the charges of immorality. And that trial was heard during the following year. They were both acquitted. And uh, when it was then republished in book form, it was met with very warm reception. So he was like a self-explanatorily like huge perfectionist. And he was like a painstaking revisionist. And uh, he had this like painstaking style of writing. He didn't write as much as the normal people were writing for his time. So normal people were churning them out and he was just so much of a perfectionist that he did not actually very publish very much. He had a large influence on 20th century writers like Kafka in particular. And at the time of his death, he was regarded widely as the most influential French realist. So he's been admired or written about by like almost every major lit personality of the 20th century, like Foucault, Barthes, uh, Bourdieu, Sartre, um, was all talked about Flaubert. Yeah, that is Flaubert. And that is Madame Bovary. You're welcome. What a shit show. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that was um, something. <laughs> Who has to read that book? Like, is that like a college level book? Like a high school level book? Is that just like a it's classic because it's been around a long time and there's a lot of political shit in it or yeah um it's a very well known right book for its time it was very well beloved especially by realists and you probably wouldn't have someone reading this yeah until they were in college it wouldn't even be something that they would get assigned to like maybe if we're talking about like world literature or surveys of like literature depending on the different areas like European literature maybe but um I would say you would probably find it more in like a lit realism course or maybe in a um really specialized like English renaissance period stuff or um, so this is like 
specific to English majors, pretty much. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I I don't know if you would read it unless maybe you would be reading it like for French and like the original French, right? Yeah. Um, because like I said, there is potentially something lost in translation when we start reading it in English versus Flaubert was a was a French writer right? So maybe there's something to be said about reading it in its original form uh, for how like poetic it is. And like I said, there are parts of it that are still even in English, very striking and well-written. Um, he's a great writer and it's uh, it's a well-known, it's just one of those stories that like, you know, like Anna Karenina, right? Where it's just such an iconic character that everyone thinks of and the fact that yeah it, there was so much scandal when it came out it was so immoral it was so like we don't talk about this in so fantastic terms like usually if you're going to read about people having affairs it's going to be much more decidedly against those people like ah, well shit they fucked up now now they're an evil person who gets everything that's coming to them and it's like Flaubert really he lives in their thoughts and their emotions the the story called madame bovary it's not called charles bovary it's not called you know monsieur may it is madame bovary regardless of whether or not he wanted to like you know put out some of his other like political thoughts and stuff in here he clearly wanted to make a statement for like women here. And I could absolutely hear arguments of whether it's a for women or against women statement that he's making, but he clearly wanted to put out a, a story that has a focus where the woman character is a quote unquote immoral woman character, but we follow along with her and we feel the emotions that she feels. And you know, he goes into details and explains her emotions and why she feels the way she feels. And it's a, it's a tragic story for sure, but there are bright spots in it. And like, she has moments of joy in it. I think that speaks to people that it is in terms of realism. I was talking a whole bunch of shit on him for his, like, <laughs> you know, his descriptions of everything on the wedding table, but yeah. there's something to be said about the realism of depicting a person as they would be in real life, right? Madame Bovary would have been a character that is a real person that people definitely probably knew, right? Um, people knew someone who was a Madame Bovary. And it's the same argument of trying to say like, no, you have to show people about as how they really are. Because uh, if you're not doing that, then there's no representation and there's no way to talk about the problems that that living like this makes us feel like this right and we can't fix those problems if we don't talk about those problems and we can't talk about those problems if we don't explore the actual aftermath of it which is people who act like this right why does she act like this well like you said she can't get a divorce right which is for ome if you asked ome like religion is bullshit so if you don't want to be with your husband, sure, get a divorce, but she can't do that, right? Um, it would have all been avoided if that was a different scenario. And as a woman, she was able to have more agency with making the decisions for herself, but she couldn't. And there's moments where she talks in the story about how she hates men, hates men, because the plight of a woman, men will never be able to understand. It doesn't matter what men go through. 
it doesn't matter what you know, noble men are out there. A woman's plight is always worse because a woman is a subjugated sex. She, they're a subjugated class. Right. Um, and that's definitely to me, you know, reading it as a professional, that's a statement that Flaubert is making, whether he's making that ironically or not. I don't, I didn't really study enough of this era of type of literature to like be super versed in it. Yeah, but it says to me, to be perfectly honest, something when you have something so outright written like that and have her be the character, the main character, rather than, you know, us following Charles forever and like having this be something that happens to Charles or having this be written by a dude about a woman. That is something that's crazy. If this had been written by, like, say, one of the, gosh, uh, the Bronte sisters, right? I would expect that a little more here, but I think because it's a dude writing about it, that there's this simultaneously like exploitative ambiance surrounding the book. Like, no, if a woman wrote about this, then we would, we would have a much easier time dismissing it as just a woman, like, you know, exploring darker nature. And then, you know, all the complaints that she writes about in it could be explained away of that, of that, you know, women just don't know what they're talking about. But the fact that it's a dude writing this during this time and having the woman character be saying this, that is probably something that challenged and scared them a little more because you know, no, men are supposed to want to subjugate women because women are the weaker sex. You can't be writing like this about women. If you think like this, then that makes the rest of us dudes look bad. Like what the fuck, dude? You know? So, well, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. And now for something super duper fucking different, because (laughs) I did not try to match theme at all. Yeah. I watched the 1995 I think let me check might be 1994 I think it's 1995 classic to me movie (laughs) man of the house oh hell yeah yeah so there are two movies named man of the house uh one of them came out in the mid 2000s it starred Tommy Lee Jones and Anna Faris where he like was in charge of a sorority house for some reason Okay, that's not the one I watched. No. I watched the 1995 version with Chevy Chase and my childhood, one of my childhood crushes, Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Yeah, I was going to say it's a Jonathan Taylor Thomas movie from what I remember. Yes, it is Jonathan Taylor Thomas. I used to have that VHS, I think. Yes, and we watched it all the time. (laughs) I loved this movie. Yeah. Um, And... I there is charm in it for sure like there were a couple moments there where it got really heartfelt and I like started to tear up and I was like oh that's really cute but a lot Uh of this movie (laughs) it is incredibly 90s yeah in that I don't know there's a moment where they talk about cultural awareness but Mm. like this they don't movie, have any this movie could not be made today the way that it (laughs) the, the way the script is could not be made today okay you'll see why in a second all right so this movie starts out with jonathan taylor thomas he plays a character named ben and ben is narrating uh over this scene talking about his life so far he explains that five years ago uh everything was super happy and great and then his dad basically said you know i love you and your mom 
but I got to go be on my own for a while. So his dad leaves and his dad fucking took the secretary with him because he needed someone to answer the phone calls and he just fucking left. Oh, Jesus. And Ben is like, yeah, he promised he would come and see me every once in a while, but he never really did that. So it's just been me and my mom for like five years. And that's cool. We adapted, you know, just fine. It's been just the two of us. Yeah. And he talks about how they moved to like a smaller apartment uh, for just the two of them and how they started collecting uh, beach, not trash, but beach things. They collect like driftwood and seashells and different things like that Hmm. um, off the beach near their house. And they have created this art piece on their wall that they've been working on for the last five years, essentially. Um, And, you know, he's. They don't know when it's ever, if it's ever going to be done, but it's something that they like to do. You know, one of the days of the week, they go down to the beach, they collect shit, and then they bring it back and put it on their wall. Yeah. Um, Throughout these five years, mom has been dating, but hasn't really ever found anyone that's compatible with her and Ben together. They just, they've never been the right fit. And now Ben is 11 years old. He's like in sixth grade or something like that. And Ben finds out that Sandy, his mom, has started a relationship with Jack. Now, Jack has become a staple in his mom's life, but hasn't really been a part of Ben's life at all. They've been keeping it separate because that's what a lot of people do when you start to date again. Right. Keep it separate for a while to make sure that this is something you want to move forward with before the kids start getting attached. Right. So Jack is played by Chevy Chase. Oh, the mom, Sandy, that's Farrah Fawcett, by the way. She's fucking gorgeous and flawless. She has like, I don't know, 10 lines in this whole movie, but doesn't matter. She's pretty and she's there. Absolutely. (laughs) Farrah Fawcett can be saying one line from Flaubert's Madame Bovary. And it would be the line of like whatever was sitting on the wedding feast table. And I'd be like, yes, babe, whatever you say. Yeah. Yeah. So Sandy and Jack are getting serious and uh, Sandy tells Ben, okay, Jack is going to move in. It's just a trial run. Basically, he's going to keep his apartment across town in case it doesn't work out. But we're going to see how this works out because, you know, I see a future with Jack. And Ben's like, uh, I don't know about all that, but I guess like, sure. And as this is happening, Ben is definitely feeling crowded out of his space. You know, Jack comes in, takes over the bathroom. You know, the medicine cabinet is full of his stuff and Ben doesn't know why. And mom's like, oh, I moved your stuff down into the cabinet because Jack is a grown man. Yeah. If you're a child, you get the stuff on the bottom, he gets the stuff on the top. Right. And Ben's just like, ah, oh, everything's changing and I don't like it because I'm 11. Right. For sure. So Jack goes to work right like the next day after moving in and he closes this huge case that he's been part of for a long time. Jack's a lawyer. And he ends up putting this drug lord behind bars. This older, he's like old. But he ends up getting like 50 years in prison. So he's going to die in prison. And the drug lord's son, who is like the now the new head of the gang, basically vows 
to himself like and to his buddies we're gonna take care of that guy because that's not acceptable so now the audience unbeknownst to the family the audience knows the gang is after jack so at school ben meets this kid with his other friend that was shoved into a locker and they help the kid out of the locker and he asks him you know why were you in the locker what's going on and the kid explains oh it's because of my what i'm wearing and he's wearing like a leather indian vest and i apologize for that but it's on purpose because this movie is inappropriate as fuck and i will stop saying that very soon i promise (laughs) oh man Okay, so he is wearing that and some other kids at school bully him and put him in the fucking locker. So Jonathan Taylor Thomas and his friend get him out of the locker and he's explaining, you know, what happened. And he explains why he's wearing this Indian vest. And it is because he is part of a group called the Indian Guides. (laughs) Oh, God. Which is a father-son club almost like a boy scout troop but they kind of follow quote follow like indian tradition so like the president of the club the dad that's in charge is the chief and the greeting in the club is hi hawaii like it's fucking horrible <laughs> okay oh okay. my god yes <laughs> oh wow Wow. Okay. So now that I've explained what the group is about, I will not be calling it that anymore. They are from now on, they are called the IGs because right. that's just what I'm going to call them. Okay. Because it's just bad. Absolutely. Accepted. Appreciate. They're the IGs. Okay. Holy shit. I like you kept going and I was thinking like, it doesn't get worse than that. Oh, it doesn't get worse than that. Oh, <laughs> oh no. It can't get worse than that. And you just kept going. Yes. <laughs> Okay, so the kid, the kid explains basically the purpose of the IGs and what the, you know, the father son aspect of it and how he how cool it is. This kid's like really hyped up about it. He really, really likes it because he's had a great experience. And he's like the little nerdy kid. And the best friend is like, oh, well, yeah, that's fucking nerdy because he's the cool black kid. The only kid in the fucking movie of color, like (laughs) the only black kid in the whole movie is like, that's nerdy as shit. I'm out. (laughs) But... (laughs) But Ben, Jonathan Taylor Thomas is like, this is perfect. It's father son, you say, and you have to dress up like in the weird IG like shit leather and like mohawk like things like that's where that's that'll get Jack to leave. That's what we're going to do. So I'm going to suggest to Jack. I'm going to tell Jack that I want to join the IGs and that's what we'll do. So Jack, who has been desperate to kind of connect with Ben is like, yes, let's do it. I, you know, I want you to accept me because I love your mom very much. And I want this to, you know, be permanent. So Jack agrees and they go to their first IG club meeting. And at the IG club meeting, they meet all the crazy characters that is the rest of the IGs. So the chief is played by i think his name is george wentz he played norm on cheers and he Mm. uh yeah george went he is the chief and he's just like the silly i mean he's norm but like in a kiddie way 
So all yeah. of the hilarity that he was and the silly things he was doing on Cheers, just like change that to be acceptable. For he's like there a- because he's very funny on Cheers. That's the he's an insert character. Well, yeah. yes, but but he is he's a he's a goofball. Yeah. Um, and this character actually went through several different people that it was supposed to be, but couldn't be because of just different things. So originally it was meant to be John Candy. Um, but he passed away before this film, before he could even be offered. And then the second choice was John Goodman, but John Goodman had time constraints because of the Flintstones movie and Roseanne. A lot of shit right then. Yeah. Yeah. And then when Chevy Chase was given the role, because he was originally not supposed to be the first character. It's supposed to be Tim Allen, but Tim Allen was also hella busy. When Chevy Chase was given the role, he suggested Robin Williams because Robin Williams and him were really good friends. But Robin Williams had hella shit going on, including Mrs. Doubtfire and Jumanji. So (laughs) then Chevy Chase was like, oh, well, I'm really good friends with George Wendt. Let's do him. So George went and got the role after several people were too busy to do it. Um, And then we also meet this guy who's like the secretary of the club. And he's the super rule follower. He has the guidebook like memorized from top to bottom. uh, Played by Art LaFleur. He's hilarious. And then a third member or a third dad who is silent. Like he's his job quote in real life. He's a circus performer. And he doesn't say a single word in the whole movie. Everything he does is mimed. And it's just for zany comic relief. It's fucking funny, but ridiculous. This group has given everybody nicknames. Basically, father and son get to name each other. And everyone's named like inappropriate, stereotypical, quote, Indian names. In Jesus. Yeah. Kill me. (laughs) So they, at their first meeting, they have to give each other names Mm -hmm. and Jack names Ben Little Wing, right? Because he's a kid. All the kids have kind of like little something in their name or something like that to allude to the fact that they're small. So he gets Little Wing, right? Jack's like, I don't really know what the fuck I'm doing. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And Ben, who is purposely trying to get rid of Jack, calls him Squatting Dog love that yeah so that's just their names for (laughs) for forever anytime they're in the ig presence because they all call each other by their fucking names their nicknames of course they do yeah so the first meeting was weird and jack is just like this is a lot ben are you sure you're really into this and ben is faking enthusiasm yeah of course this is great like i'm really excited to get to know you better and this will be a good way for us to do that and blah 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 And Ben's, you know, Ben's just rambling off all these reasons why he wants to do it, even though none of that is true. He's just trying to get rid of Jack. (laughs) Right. So they go to, they show up to this IG barbecue and everyone is dressed normal except for Chevy Chase because Ben told Chevy Chase that everyone was going to be dressed up. So he is like in full garb, like leather, leather shirt, leather pants, like a full headdress. Yikes. Barb. Yikes. Yeah. And he shows up to this barbecue and everyone else is like, bro. Oh, well, we don't usually show up fully dressed up like that, except for like really special events. Sorry, no one told you. 
Oh, wow. And Chevy Chase is just like, oh, yeah, uh, my bad. I just assumed. And he was like, oh, yeah, well, I guess that's right. Because we were kind of dressed up at the last meeting. Sure. So then Ben is like, okay, well, I have to paint your face. Because everybody had their face like painted a little bit for Mm -hmm. the IG thing. They had like essentially war paint. Yeah. You know, face paint under the cheeks and under your chin and on your forehead and whatever to look native american and while ben is doing this jack is like did you check the paint because this you know this has to be safe because i break out really easily like i don't want to get a rash i can't get a rash and (laughs) ben promises i you know i checked this is safe it's just watercolor like you'll be okay and guess what it wasn't so of course yeah the next day jack is at work and he is being berated by (laughs) (laughs) by this other guy who is hold on i gotta find his name his name is leonard red crow okay actual native american here okay his name is leonard red crow and he is berating chevy chase in front of a judge because chevy chase was meant to defend leonard red crow and his tribe who are suing the u.s government for some shit about their lands Mm-hmm. And he came with a rash of fucking war paint on his face. Yeah. The only like upside, like the guy, Leonard Redcrow, like makes a joke at Chevy's expense because he has a fucking happy face on his forehead that Ben had put in that is rashed. <laughs> and yeah. he was like, war paint, that's like totally, he's making a mockery of this case. But uh, just for a heads up, uh, Jack, like, the happy face is not traditionally a Native American symbol. Yeah. The fact that the fact that they're so aware of the racism that they have this as a shtick embedded in the actual narrative. Oh, yeah. Is wild. Okay. So the judge is like contemplating switching the uh, lawyers or whatever around and granting an extension to extend to whatever change the thing. And Chevy Chase is in his boss's, like the head of his law firm's office. The head of his law firm is berating him for how culturally inappropriate this is. And he's like, dude, you cannot mock Indians. It's the 90s. Kill me. And my face just like, my (laughs) jaw dropped. (laughs) I was like, bro. That's not... I'm this watching this in 2022. You can't say that. Yeah. You're, <laughs> I was the like, opposite you're, of the statement you're making. Yeah, you're preaching about cultural inappropriateness, but while also being culturally inappropriate. <laughs> wow. Yeah, okay. so the 90s were on full display here um, and the lack of care for our Native American brethren just on full display here because it, every regard to them is well and talk about native american exploitation like oh yeah okay thank you good job that you got a real native american to be the native american character who's yelling at the fucking asshole that's making fun of his goddamn cultural heritage in the movie where you are literally making fun of their cultural heritage you just fucking wait sam what just wait wait (sighs) this movie is so problematic and i'm mad that i love it 
and I loved it so much. I still love it. And it's a problem. I shouldn't love this movie because it's so inappropriate. Yeah. But I just have, a. it's a fucking mess. Anyways, you're saying it. And like, I knew that you said the name of the movie and I couldn't remember a single thing about it, except that Jonathan Taylor Thomas and Chevy Chase were in it. And as you were talking, I was like, oh yeah, I remember that. Oh yeah, I remember that. Oh yeah, I remember that. And it's like every single moment is just like compounded upon mortification because when people talk about like, oh, representation doesn't matter. No, this is why it does matter because I guarantee you, I was saying some dumb shit after watching this fucking movie for probably years afterwards. Oh, for sure. You know what? Like, fuck me for that. But also- how was I going to not do that when you're fucking making movies like this? And that's why fucking representation matters. Yeah, for sure. So Jack gets let go from the case. Um, There is a small scene within this moment where we notice the, the gang guys are following Jack. We just like, we're aware that they are keeping tabs on him, but Jack gets home. I'm so sorry. Go ahead. The gang. What color are they i need to know italian okay okay they're could be worse still not great but could be worse they okay. are uh they play it like the mob in this movie but they never come out and really say mob mm-hmm. um and when i think of the mob i don't necessarily think of drugs which is what the old man went to went to jail for i think when i think of the mob i think of like bank robberies and like money laundering and like in like drugs were drugs are a huge part of the mafia and stuff for sure they yes but i don't know it's it's weird in this movie they they don't ever come out and say it i just called them like gangsters for my notes you could say mob it's it's all the same they're yeah looking out for revenge on chevy chase okay so jack gets kicked off the case And he goes home and he's talking to Sandy and is like trying to come up with a a solution. And the best solution that he can come up with is that he has to quit the IGs, basically. You know, it's not working out with his workload and it's making him like this is the first time he's ever been kicked off a case because he's spending too much time, you know, doing IG stuff and not enough time in the office and all these different things. And he and Sandy have a fight because Sandy is just like, Ben really cares about this and you can't do this to him, basically. Like, you told him you would be there, you would join this group for him, you gotta be there with him. Right. And they have a big fight and Ben overhears the fight and Ben plays up the fact that he's disappointed in Jack and upset that he's quitting and storms off into his room. Jack and Sandy keep talking and Jack comes to the realization, okay, I'll just stick it out. I will rework my schedule around all the IG stuff. I will make it work so that I can do both. I'll take a lighter workload so that we can enjoy this together because clearly this means a lot to Ben and I didn't mean to upset him like this because Jack genuinely cares about making Ben happy. Yeah. So Jack goes upstairs to talk to Ben to let him know that they are staying. He's going to stay in the IGs. And right before he can knock on the door, he hears Ben talking on the phone to his best friend. And he's like, 
yeah, I think I finally have Jack on the run. Like he's quitting the IGs and I played up the I'm really hurt card. So I think he's finally done and he's going to be out of here. And I think I did it. Right. So yeah. Jack overhears all this and is like, oh, oh, oh you well can. You oh, you thought, you little bitch. <laughs> not so, not so evil. That's how I would have reacted. But <laughs> Chevy Chase is just like visibly hurt, like emotionally yeah, hurt. For sure. And he goes to Chet, who is the chief at, at his job. He's like a woodshop teacher. And he asks Chet for advice because Chet is also a stepdad. And Chet basically gives him the advice that he needs to loosen up and act like a kid again because if he's willing to make fun of himself that will loosen up Ben right because Ben is just uptight and nervous and doesn't know what to do you know he doesn't really know how to navigate these waters either but if you show that you can have fun eventually Ben will loosen up it might take a long time but eventually it'll happen yeah so Jack is like okay cool Then, like after school, I think, Jack is there and he's sitting with mom and Ben comes in the door and Ben is shocked that Jack is there. And he's like, well, what are you doing here? And he's like, what do you mean? I live here. Like, where would I be? Right. And Ben's like, uh, okay. Jack says, Ben, I'd like you to meet my friend, Leonard Redcrow. I have asked him to help make the IGs super authentic. Shut up. So then the next shut up is them at the IGs. It's a whole fu- it's like a 5 minute montage of all the dads and kids at the I like with the IGs in a park with Leonard Redcrow teaching them how to shoot bows and arrows, how to throw tomahawks and how to rain dance. <laughs> <laughs> okay i told you i don't you thought you thought we hit it this is the moment we hit it okay. wow this is the exploitation moment okay holy shit okay and well, it is it is a full-on five-minute montage like who knows how much time had passed because in the right. montage ben literally goes from sitting on his ass under a tree unwilling to participate in anything to genuinely giving a fuck. And by the end of it, he's like full on rain dancing with everybody. They're all in like matching shirts and shit. Sure they are. It's yeah. Like, whew. Wild. They make it rain. <laughs> oh God. I hate so much everything that's happening right now. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. In this scene, there's a small Easter egg. Ben is sitting underneath the tree when he doesn't want to participate reading a comic book and on the back of the comic book is an ad for the lion king where he voiced simba mm-hmm. very small, cute small easter egg there okay so you know they're fully into the ig thing now like they've committed ben's walls have been broken down he enjoys shooting the arrows and learning about tomahawks and all these cool things and he is committed. He's telling his friend that he has committed about it. Like at school, he's like, can you shoot a bow and arrow? Like, do you know how to throw a tomahawk? I didn't fucking think so. Like, stop judging me. <laughs> <laughs> and after school that day, Jack basically tells Ben, uh, I have invited Norm over 
who is the nerdy kid who got shoved into the lockers for a sleepover and basically tells Ben like, you know, it would be really cool of you to like make friends with him, basically like do this for me. It would be really good. And, you know, he doesn't have a lot of friends at school and he's struggling and all these things like basically just don't be a dick. Right. Um, You know, he's part of your IG group, like be friends with him. So Ben agrees and they have a sleepover and the dad, um, Norm's dad, the chief comes over earlier in the day and sets up like an authentic teepee on the roof of the building. Cause that's like their garden, whatever backyard area. So they have a fucking teepee on the roof. And yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yes. And the two kids are going to have like a sleepover out there. And, you know, they're roasting marshmallows and talking. And Norm basically is like, he's like, I don't know, maybe fourth grade. Like he's smaller, younger than Ben. Mm. And he's explaining, you know, I've never, thank you so much for inviting me. Like I've never been to a sleepover before and I've never done all oh. these things. And I've, you oh, know, no. I don't really have a lot of friends. And, uh, Ben is like, yeah, dude, no problem. Like we're friends. We're in the IGs together and all these things. And Norma's like, here, I made this for you. And he pulls out a fucking leather vest with like intricate beadwork done on it. Like Native American beadwork that he did that he made for Ben. And Ben is like just overwhelmed touched because holy shit this little kid made him a whole ass vest yeah that's a lot it is a lot so ben is just like dude do you want to get out of here and like go downstairs and play fucking video games and the kid is like hell yeah i fucking love video games let's go and they like insta bond (laughs) um and it's adorable (laughs) so they play video games now they're friends then the next day at school some kids are picking on norm because again he's wearing his vest And Ben, who is also wearing his vest, the one that Norm made him, is like, nah, bitch, don't fuck with my friend. And he tries to stop the fight, but the kids are huge. So Ben also gets shoved in a locker. But now they're in lockers together and they're just dealing with it. (laughs) Oh, no, that's cute. It's cute. So the IGs plan a canoe trip. They are going to go like whitewater canoeing and it's going to be great. It's going to be, you know, all four dads, all four kids. They're going to go out and just have a great time. And they plan to meet at this spot at like noon. So the three dads are there and the four kids are there and they're waiting for Jack to get off work so he can come visit. And he promised Ben he was going to be there while he's on his way. He realizes his brakes don't work. And we see the truck behind Ben is full of the three mobster gangster guys that have been chasing him basically this following him this whole movie and one of the guys remarks i cut his brakes so chevy chase goes on basically a high speed just disaster run Uh, through seattle jesus uh it's all downhill so he's just constantly gaining speed (laughs) Uh, absolutely bad yeah um and he ends up with his truck in the bay like he flies into the water and he escapes he lives but his fucking truck was in the water and the mobsters come and check that 
he was dead, but he wasn't. He had made it out and they were like, we got to get the fuck out of here so he doesn't see us because he can't know that we're following him. He can't know that we were here. So they leave and Chevy Chase is just like, fuck. Like I was already running a couple of minutes late and now I'm going to be like forever late, right? So Ben's going to be mad at me. This whole thing's going to be horrible. The rest of the IGs at the meeting spot wait basically an hour for Jack, but don't hear anything. And the other dads are like, well, we got to go. Like, if we don't yeah. leave now, we just won't end up leaving. Uh, you are welcome to come with us. Like, you can sit in our canoe and we'll just, we'll, you know, it'll be three people to a canoe. And Ben's just like, no, that's not the same. You guys go on without me and I'm going to go home. It'll be fine. Aww. So the other three IGs leave and then Ben, like, breaks down crying all by himself in a park, like at the meeting spot. Oh, no walks himself home and talks to his mom when he gets there he's like what's wrong why that was fast i thought you what happened to the canoe trip right and he's just like jack never showed up what like i'm super mad at him like what what the hell so he goes and sits down just like in his own feelings and mom tries to console him like i know jack he would never do something like this you know ben compares him to his dad like letting him down like his dad did and she's just like jack would never do this something serious had to have happened had to have come up like i promise he wouldn't have done this like and ben's just not having any of it he's like no this is he let me down right jack comes in he shows up later and he is drenched of course because he's in the fucking bay and mom is just like what happened and He's just like, oh, I had car troubles, um, but everything's okay. Uh, I really need to talk to Ben. And he goes and talks to Ben and he, you know, explains that he had car troubles and tries to get Ben to understand. And Ben's just like, you let me down. Bye. And walks away to his room, you know, kind of moody teenager, but he's really a preteen. He's just really upset. And Jack feels horrible because what else like he couldn't have avoided this this is something super for sure super insane it's also like yeah sure i guess everything is okay right now but like you you drove your car into the bay like there should be lots of other things going on right now yes but he hasn't told anyone that he drove his car into the bay he just (laughs) said car troubles okay (laughs) wild yeah he promises while he's talking to ben that the this big fourth of july trip that's coming up he is going to be there it's going to be the best trip ever they're going to make it great and ben's just like yeah yeah i've heard your promises before whatever bye yeah so time jump ahead to the fourth of july trip and ben is still fucking hell of upset right but whatever all of the igs are there they brought all the stuff to set up their teepees and everything we see them walking by and then we see the gang dudes are also following them like oh no you know they're far back far enough back that they won't be heard but they're also there in the forest like they have followed chevy chase all the way to this fucking forest so they start setting up their camp and ben refuses to help he's just like i'm fucking done with this you're an asshole i don't care about you anymore we're done um so jack asks lloyd who is the circus performer dad to help him put up the teepee and make it funny. Like, we're going to make it funny. We're going to make Ben laugh. So, you know, a two-minute montage of them putting up this fucking tent together or this teepee together 
while hitting each other with these big ass sticks and things like it's very slapstick i laughed out loud because it's just fucking chevy chase and this other dude three stooges stuff literally beating the shit out of each other with these sticks and like hammers and stuff it was funny (laughs) besides the fact that they were making a horribly racist teepee that they right just shouldn't happen so they try to make ben laugh and um it kind of works then that night there's like a bonfire and they're telling stories and chevy chase tells a story and it's basically a mock indian language that he uses oh jesus (laughs) yeah i can't take it Yeah, it's bad. So he starts telling this story and he's, you know, not using regular grammar. He's using like chopped up. How do I describe this? Racist. That's how you describe it. Very, very racist. (laughs) Jesus. Native American. Like basically what talking like he can't speak good English. Yes. Basically what movies depicted Native Americans how movies depicted native americans to speak in like the 50s like that's how he's telling this story and one of the kids like points out yeah that's not how native americans speak and he's like oh i know it's just for effect for this story he literally says that in this movie i hate this so much it's so it's cringy (laughs) it's so so fucking cringy so so bad so he tells this story and it's basically the story of him and ben and the mom and the dad that walked out and he uses these you know quote native american names to describe each character and you know he describes the story so far the dad has walked out it was just the mom and the boy and they became super close then mom started seeing somebody else And the boy was scared that his relationship with his mom would change and all these things. And the new boyfriend just wanted to assure him that nothing was going to change and that he was there to take care of him, basically. Chevy Chase just pleading his case in the form of this incredibly offensive Native American story. So that happens. And Ben kind of smirks a couple times while he's telling the story, but still doesn't forgive him. Right. So Jack is just like, ugh, I feel like this is never going to work. And he's talking to Chet and Chet is like, you are doing a great job. That was a wonderful story. I promise Ben will come around soon. Like it'll, it'll happen. Like just keep, keep at it. You're doing a wonderful job. So the next morning they wake up and Jack looks around and doesn't see Ben anywhere. So he asks Chet, Hey, where's Ben? And Chet has sent Ben with all the canteens down to the river to fill them up. Mm Mm-hmm. So when Ben is heading or getting close to the river, he sees the three mobsters in the river, like catching fish or whatever the fuck they're doing. And he overhears them talking about how they came into the woods to kill Jack. Oh, no. So Ben runs back to warn him. And Jack explains who those guys are and what happened during the canoe trip fiasco and ben is basically like why didn't you just tell me that your brakes were cut like why why didn't you tell me you ended up in the bay and he's like i didn't want to worry you or your mom like i just said car troubles to not war- worry you like i can handle you being mad at me but i don't want you and your mom to worry about me to be scared 
Yeah. So Ben was like, dude, you, you can't didn't be have doing to do that. that. Like, don't worry about me. So Jack explains the whole situation to the rest of the IGs and he sends all of the rest of them, including Ben, to go find the park rangers, basically, because they're in a national park. And he's like, I will lead them away and we'll meet back at this camp. Like, I will bring them back to this camp. And by the time I get back, you guys will have the rangers with you. So the IGs head out and Chevy Chase heads out to get the people to follow him. And he falls down this crazy hill and a log falls after him and hurts his leg, like rolls on his leg. And he's kind of stuck there for a minute. It's not broken, but it, he's like stuck in a weird position. Yeah. And then Ben pops up and he's like, Ben, what the hell? What are you doing here? Like you were supposed to be gone. And he was like, yeah, I could see that me not being here was working out real great for you. Let me help you. (laughs) So Ben and him figure out a plan to at least distract or slow down the mobsters for as long as it takes the other IGs to get the park rangers involved. So they like sharpen their tomahawks and their bow, they sharpen the tips of all of their arrows and they see a a beehive that they're going to use to like fuck with them. So they set this beehive up to basically be a trap up high in a tree and they get the mobsters, they like lay little parts of their fringe like on different bushes so the mobsters follow the fringe and land in this specific area Mm. then they shoot the beehive with an arrow so the bees get pissed and they chop it down with a tomahawk and it falls right where the mobsters are and they get all stung and then the third mobster comes around the corner and traps them oh no so now ben and jack are trapped essentially at the edge of an abandoned mine um that the mobsters have surrounded with dynamite (laughs) this is fucking wild like it turned into a looney tunes cartoon real quick yeah it's very looney tunes you're correct yeah yeah or the the mobsters are like they set the fuse on fire they have this really long fuse so they can get away because it's about to be a fucking wild ass explosion so they set this fuse to go and as the fuse is just about to get to the dynamite, an arrow comes out of nowhere and cuts the fuse, basically, at the point before it hits the dynamite. So, yeah. yay, no dynamite. And the mobster's like, where the fuck did that come from? And it's one of the dads. And he's like, oh, well, now it's three on three. What are you going to do about that, bitch? And then the other dad, <laughs> the mobster's like, we have guns. You have arrows. Like, this is not a competition. And then <laughs> all the rest of the IGs roll up and they all have their arrows drawn. So now it's fucking like six on three yeah. with Chevy Chase and Jonathan Taylor Thomas just like still kind of in the weird area. So they end up basically capturing the mobsters. They like attack them. There's this little fight scene. And the mobsters get snatched up by them and taken into custody. So the day is saved. There's this heartwarming father-son moment at the end of this where they're basically just talking about how, I don't know, how happy they are to be in each other's lives. And uh, Chevy Chase asks Ben for permission to marry Sandy. And he basically says, well, there's some things I got to know about you. And then they start 
Ben starts asking questions and it blends into the next scene and they walk into the apartment and Ben is still asking Jack questions. And it's all this like fucking random shit. Like, have you ever, you know, uh, hidden bodies in acid or something like that? Because he's like convinced that he's a serial killer or some shit. And Jack is just like, well, especially now, given the experience that he just had with literal like fucking Italian mafia trying to kill his soon to be stepdad. Yeah. Yeah. And Jack is just like, I haven't done that in years. You know, Jack's just playing. Them. They're, <laughs> they're both very sarcastic. Yeah. <laughs> so it works really well. Um, and when they come into the apartment, they're carrying a bunch of stuff from the beach. Like they had just collected stuff on their wherever from the beach and come in. So they go up to the wall, which they have been de- which mom and uh, Ben have been decorating for years and years and years. And they're placing their pieces all on this like like fishnet you know how people like do that at restaurants and shit with those big fishnets yeah it's one of those essentially and they're like placing all these pieces and he asks ben like okay have i passed the test like can i go talk do i get to go talk to your mom and he's like yeah i think you passed and then ben backs up and he's like wait a minute jack look what you just did you finished it and jack backs up and we get to see the picture that has developed over the course of five years yeah and it's made this big circle of driftwood like it's complete now the big piece that he just put on like finished this the loop mm-hmm. and ben screams for his mom and his mom comes in and he's like look what jack did jack finished the thing on the wall the art and everyone's like holy shit the art is finished and now we can get married hooray yeah the circle has finally been the circle's finally been completed so the movie ends with the wedding scene um we see all the different kooky characters from the igs at the wedding all the dads with their kids acting goofy all the moms are just kind of like y'all are fucking weird can you stop yeah (laughs) it's funny um you see jonathan taylor thomas's cool black friend his best friend um, who's kind of warming to the idea of joining the IGs. He's like started to make friends with a couple of the kids in the IGs and is like, yeah, I could probably do this. And yeah. then um, they show Farrah Fawcett. And while this is happening, the whole wedding scene is being uh, over narrated by Jonathan Taylor Thomas, just like the beginning of the movie was. Yeah. And he's talking about like the futures of all these characters, like what happened immediately following or what they've been doing the last month or whatever it is. Hmm. And then the mom starts to walk in and he basically is like, and I've never seen my mom happier in her whole life or in my whole life. And then of course I let them get married and blah, blah, blah. Like it was his fucking choice. Right. (laughs) And then it ends the end. Wow. Yeah. It is cute. And heartwarming and also incredibly racist and culturally inappropriate. Yeah. I mean, there's so much wow. There's so much. And it is a problem throughout the 90s. Like this was a a big thing, especially in the early 90s of like having a token Native American character Mm -hmm. come in and be that like guide character guide yeah whatever that was a big thing in the 90s and the worst part about it is a lot of times the person playing that character was not even native american right they were mexican and that was the only mexican you ever got in the film so 
it's like double racist because you couldn't even cast a Mexican person in a Mexican role. Like you just were like, you know what? Your skin's brown. You're Native American. Right. Same difference. What the fuck? Yeah. Yeah. We've come a long way. And the fact that they mention the cultural inappropriateness several times in this film, like they reference to it and how weird it is. Like it's one thing, it's one thing for a work for a piece of work to be racist in its depiction, right? And if you, you know, for instance, you mentioned like the 50s. So like if you watch something from the 50s, we would get be getting all of this, but it would be unironic. Yeah. Um, and it's one thing to watch that because they full frontal believe in that. Yeah. It's another thing to watch something and have it blatantly acknowledge the inappropriateness yeah because it says it it says so much about the attitude surrounding the issue yeah to be like you know what it's enough of an issue that we can't actually act like this unironically anymore but it's still it's still something that is so unimportant to us to handle responsibly and with respect yeah. that's the thing is there's no re- there's no respect for why it is actually an issue it yeah. it doubles down on it it makes it it makes yeah. it a not only is this offensive but i know it's offensive and i know that you find it offensive and that's funny it's funny yeah. that you find this offensive which is a thousand times worse yeah like it's, it's so an interesting bad. it's an interesting glimpse into where we were in the 90s and how far we've come since the moment that this movie came out because some of the stuff that they're doing in this film I genuinely don't think was meant to be offensive sure yeah um it's just like the the actual Native American comes in and he's talking about like he's talking to the IGs about the importance of all these things and he's talking about how important the familial bonds are in the traditions of native americans and how important the father-son bond is and all these different things i'm like cool that's unironic and important to this story and it's great um but it's also but it's also fully in tokenization and and in support of the white characters who are the main characters yeah what the weird part i don't know it's like they were attempting to I feel like at the they were just starting to realize that this was wrong while mm-hmm. still not giving a fuck that it was wrong. <laughs> right. It's it's funny. It's funny to make groups like this and to do funny things like those funny Native Americans used to do. And yeah. you know what? And look here, you're exactly right. The fact that it's very likely that they believe that having the actual Native American man as that singular character somehow redeems it rather than what it does which is like i said make it even worse because you he gets to be subjected now to ah yeah the thing that i get to do now in the entertainment industry is i get to play this character i get to play the apologist character for everyone else's racism yeah it's it's wild um I want to I want to wait until you're done with your comments because I have a little more about some of the other potentially problematic things about this movie. So I want to wait and see if you talk about them first. But 
I don't really have too much more. I will say the guy who plays uh, Leonard Redcrow is an actual chief. Like his name is Chief Leonard George. Wow. So somebody was cool with it. I'm sure. I think Disney made this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Disney. I'm sure Disney paid. Hopefully they paid his tribe well. Yeah. For his appearance where he brokered some kind of deal for being the, you know, token Native American guy in this film. Yeah. Shit's a mess. So the things that I just wanted to like briefly touch on was um, e- even in addition to the racism here, it's it's hard because like, yeah, like uh, Katie said, I have fond memories of watching this movie. I loved this movie when I was mm-hmm. a kid. The more she was talking about it, the more I was like, oh yeah, I remember that. I remember that. I remember laughing my ass off. I remember loving it. I remember loving Chevy Chase, thinking he was hilarious. I, you know, you and I both idolized Jonathan Taylor Thomas And, you know, he can't really be at fault here for the choices of the adults in this situation, making the decision for him to be in this movie. Right. Uh, But even in addition to the racism. So, like, for instance, the the quote unquote mime character. So here's some ableism that I want to talk about here, because what this says to me is, gosh, wouldn't it be funny if we had somebody who can't speak because those those silly deaf people that can't speak it's always just so dang funny when they're trying to talk with their hands and no one else can understand them uh but we can't actually use somebody that's really deaf because that's insensitive so you know what we'll do we'll just make it a bit we'll we'll call him a mime circus performer guy and he's not really deaf he just chooses not to talk and that way we can have our cake and eat it too with that type of humor so that was something that like wow uh, when you said that, I was like, holy shit, that was not a good choice <laughs> for anyone to be making there. But s- second of all, the biggest thing about this movie is it falls into, and we've talked about this before, like we t- when we talked about like Smart House, for instance, there's this big thing that happens in the 90s and the early aughts with broken homes, young adult slash kid movies and all about how the kids, they have to endure such pain and suffering and traumatic emotional things that are going on with the fact that they live in a broken home. And so when someone comes in to rejoin the family and make it whole again, they're so broken because of this initial thing that broke their home that they cause strife. And it's only when they've accepted the newcomer into their household that everything is good again and and whole again. So there's this like weird like propaganda of the like you can't be a single parent right um single parentism (laughs) is something that that suffer that makes your kids suffer and is going to you know they're not going to be okay they're only going to be good if you find someone else again right um that is a problem like a huge like trope that happens in the 90s and aughts films And in particular, especially the ones that bug me the most are the ones like this, which is the, it's the mom that is the single parent. And it's a young boy that is the son that is quote unquote protecting his mother. And almost like it's this pseudo like patriarchal, like the mom is owned by the men in her life. So if it's not the dad, then it falls to the son to own his mom and to take care of her. And then when the new dad is coming in, there's this 
there's this rivalry thing which is gross because he's a son he's not a he's not a rival to the stepdad right yeah. like he that they're they have entirely different roles but that's always how it's played and it's always like meant to be this weird like expected funny thing that is just kind of I would not have blinked an eye at it you know years and years ago but now I look at and I go like man that's just so misogynistic because it's like first of all it shouldn't be normalized like ah that's just so natural that that's how the the young son is gonna feel right like is it natural or is it that you guys like reinforce its naturalism by constantly putting out these stories? Yeah. Like tell everyone that that's how it's supposed to be. And you can tell that that's what it is because it's never about the mom and her daughter, right? It's never about the daughter who's doing that to the newcomer, right? Or if the daughter's doing it, it's, it's usually with a, with a dad. Freaky Friday. Yes. That is uh, a, an exception to the rule for sure. But we're getting into, I think, the newest version of the Freaky Friday with Jamie Lee and uh, Lindsay Lohan is in the 2000s, right? Yeah, it was like 2004. Yeah, so we're we're coming out. We're starting to finally be aware of kind of like maybe more unwise tropes in that regard. So maybe trying to start start to bust out of that mold, which is appreciative um, or appreciable. Yeah, I, I just wanted to like note that. Cause that's like such a bit, this, this movie is a very, very obvious, like staple and like falls very resoundingly in that trope. That is a trope that like singularly bugs me about kids movies. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, I know a lot of people whose parents got divorced in the nineties because finally in the nineties, like late eighties, nineties, it had become socially acceptable to get divorced. Yeah, There had been this huge stigma that once you get married, you can only get married once. You can never get divorced. You can never remarry all this bullshit, right? Like marriage is for life and whatever. But in the 90s, that 80s and 90s, that kind of, we kind of got rid of that. We started to just like, no, if you're unhappy, like don't stay unhappy. That's fucking stupid. If you guys aren't making each other happy anymore, get divorced. Right. And I think the biggest problem with these movies in the 90s is that they were written and produced and directed by people who had no experience with this topic because for them and their parents, divorce was not a thing. Like, wasn't a a thing they experienced. We're only really seeing now people who are our age who were children of divorce at that time in the 90s who were finally seeing that their pain, their, their, the, what they experienced be put to screen. We're yeah. not, we weren't seeing it then. This was like a child's story written by a man or a woman, whoever, who had never experienced this situation. Yeah. Now, finally, we're at the point where the people creating these works about kids going through this were also kids who went through this. So right. they, for better or worse, they understand the situation. Yeah. And I do think that you see a definite trend in those stories telling different stories rather than the trope that I was talking about. Like, yeah, that's what I think it bugs me. It's, it's specifically the trope that you see from those nineties slash very early aughts slash almost, you know, late eighties in that specific era. You're exactly right. And I think that that's the point. Like, 
unfortunately, that was the cultural response around the fact that divorce was becoming more normalized, quote unquote, more acceptable, quote unquote, great. But then obviously there was this weird cultural response in the system where let's start churning out movies that are all about what happens to kids when they get when they're involved in broken homes yeah and let's let's make sure that we send out the message that yeah you know what you can divorce you can be a part of a broken home but only if you eventually end up fixing that home again with someone new right because uh, the circle has to be you know completed yeah let's talk about the end of man of the house there there's there's a huge huge symbolic gesture there of we're not completely whole again until mom has completed the circle there's this yeah until the stepdad has finished the circle for us Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there's this wedding band uh idea in in the circle being finished by the stepdad they're like we're not we're whole again now because mom is finally back with another person right Um, well i mean yeah and that was it's a big trope in the 90s. Every movie yeah. with single parents like ended with them getting together again or them finding somebody. Like fuck three of the big Lindsay Lohan movies that, that I can name off the top of my head all ended like that. Life Size right. when he ended up with Tyra Banks, the fucking doll at the end. Uh the parent I mean, trap. He, he he ends up with a duff, different woman in life size. It's like you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. That's like there the whole time, but he does have a fling with the doll. You're right. Sure. You're right. Okay, but he anyways he ends up with somebody at the end, and then in Parent Trap, they literally the twins pull off the same shit that JTT was trying to do in this movie, where they force Meredith Blake like to run away. Yeah. So that they can push their parents back together and they fix their broken home by just putting the two pieces back together, which, okay. And then Freaky Friday where she's, I don't know if she's necessarily trying to break up their relationship in that movie, but it definitely ends with Jamie Lee Curtis and her boyfriend at the time ending up together at the end. Like, right. And to be fair, I think more there in, in Freaky Friday, there's a more nuanced approach to that in the, in terms of like Jamie, Jamie Lee Curtis is one of the characters that we follow in terms of her emotions. Right. Whereas the other ones are all just about how it's the kid and it's what the kid is going through. We're getting what the mom is going through too. So it's almost a fulfillment for the mom and of herself of like what she wants, Yeah, which it to me is a little bit more more acceptable there yeah. because at least we're giving the mom some fucking agency yes <laughs> but uh, yes yeah. yes the mom kind of gets agency in the parent trap kind of but everyone's manipulated in the parent trap so oh, for sure and i mean like the the one that it's based off of is even worse so oh yeah the one from the 60s yeah fucking mess <laughs> anyway those were the notes that i wanted that like i had to write down as we were no, that's fair. So yeah, that is Man of the House. I don't know if I want to recommend anyone watch it. Like, yeah. <laughs> we both covered things today that were kind of like, maybe don't. Maybe it's tricky don't because like, <laughs> it's tricky. Like I said at the very beginning, I loved this movie as a kid. Like loved, loved, loved this movie as a kid and watched it all the time. Watching it now, I have 
nostalgic feelings for it. Like there are scenes of the movie that I can remember that I've had in my head for 20 something years, you know, that I, as it was happening, I was like, oh yeah, I totally remember. I can remember that happening, but it is just the thing, man. It's like when you watch these movies that are like the movies, right? Like fucking Casablanca and yeah, fucking Gone with the Wind and shit. And you're like, uh, this is the pinnacle of cinema, right? Number one movie of all time or whatever the crap. And you go back and watch it. And with your 2022 goggles on, you're like, whoo. No, no, yeah, for sure. All those people just saying the N word with the hard R and the, and the just horribleness or other movies like fucking any movie made in america in the 1950s and 60s that had an asian character in it that was not fucking bruce lee yeah because they were all white guys with tape on their eyes doing horrible quote oriental accents Mm -hmm. fucking just shoot yourself like that is so fucking horrible yeah yeah it's it's similar to that feeling like when you if you feel weird when you watch those movies and just like this is fucking cringe and i don't get it yeah you'll probably feel that way when you watch this though it is a relic relic of the past yeah it's a relic It, it was meant to stay in 1995 yeah exactly we'll just uh, keep... when it came and that is where it belongs yeah we'll <laughs> just we'll just keep it in 1995 so you don't have to watch it i will say it is on disney plus which i find weird god that's a choice it is a choice like well, i don't know i haven't watched the animated peter pan on disney plus but i would imagine that they took out the native american scene in it because they probably didn't you're right because pocahontas is probably on disney plus too and that movie is a fucking shit show so Mm-hmm. who knows Probably it's fucking bad the sequel which is worse yeah <laughs> i did not see the sequel i refused yeah oh, seven words synopses i'm fucking ready today bitch hell yeah nice go first then okay so we'll start with uh madame boulanger whatever the fuck her name is <laughs> madame boulanger. uh madame bovary bovary hey. okay i don't know my phone auto corrected as i was typing it and i just like fuck it (laughs) sure whatever yeah i actually think it's funny that it corrected to that because i think boulanger is rodolph's one of her dudes's last names interesting (laughs) fucking around and spending money murders women that's that's the moral of madame bovary for better for worse unfortunately fair uh i have two for madame bovary i got um bougie ho ruins life and her families yes and oh god romeo and juliet but make her slutty <laughs> love that yeah love that <laughs> it's true it's very true yeah that was that was the the topic of the essay that he was right. handed he right. was like I'm make it a ready yeah somebody handed him a fucking shakespeare compendium and was like but make it slutty this one but make it slutty (laughs) i love that all right for man of the house the term is native americans thank you (laughs) 
Yes. Uh, and I'm going to go on record right now and apologize for the several times that I used the right. wrong word while I was saying this fucking movie or explaining this movie because I had to explain how horrible it is. Oh, for sure. I don't even feel right saying it like in expl- in the explanation. In context, yeah. <laughs> That's not right. They're not from India. They're right. from here. <laughs> mm-hmm. <sighs> horrible just horrible okay uh my seven word synopsis for man of the house culturally inappropriate club brings stepfather stepson together beautiful works and it's entirely accurate yeah love that yeah fucking mess (laughs) (laughs) all right so that has been madame bovary and man of the house we hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you are interested in following more of this show or checking out any of the other awesome shows on the Allentown Presents Network, you can check us out on Facebook at Allentown Presents, or you can check us out on Twitter at Allentown Pod. Uh, if you want to suggest a movie or a book for us to talk about, or you have questions, or you just want to say hi, you can hit us up on either one of those socials, or you can email us at AllentownPresents at gmail.com. Boom! The best way to support our show is by liking, following, subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on whatever platform you listen to your podcasts on. Following, rating, and reviewing helps small podcasts like us spread and gets the word out. And the other best way to support us is by recommending us to people you know whom you think may enjoy it. Yeah, so if you have friends who like uh, shitty movies and classic literature, (laughs) let them know. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) usually there's some fucked up shit in one or both of the stories that we're talking about surprise surprise old things get shit wrong a lot yep (laughs) we'd like to thank our icon artist susan dorda oh susan dorda you know what i would never ever uh like go on an affair with you for for years after i had a child with you and then like leave you with all of my debt i would never do that because i love you susan dorda she would never madam bovary you absolutely that's not. good to know uh if you enjoy her art you can check her out at susandorta.com that's s-u-s-a-n-d-o-r-t-a.com thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time it's been real keep it lit Bye. Bye.